Welcome to episode 13 of Central Intelligence Cinema, our review of Goldfinger. Now, just so you know, this is a lengthy episode, so perhaps fix yourself something shaken, not stirred, and relax. And if you do need a break, we've got a short interlude about halfway through, thanks to one of our sponsors. Enjoy! He needs kings and queens. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. Now hear this, Goldfinger. The CIC is about to review your movie with James Bond. Expect snide remarks, inappropriate jokes, and bad impressions of Sean Connery. It's all here in episode number 13 of Central Intelligence Cinema. I'll let one of my successors do the honors. Take it away, Pierce. Beg your pardon, forgot to knock. Welcome to the CIC, initiating security clearance. My name is Napoleon Sol. Bond. James Bond. Ethan Hunt. Felix Leiter. Ilya Kuriaki. Identity confirmed. Now, pay attention, 007. Welcome to Central Intelligence Cinema, a podcast dedicated to spy movies and secret agent pop culture. Your mission, should you decide to accept it. Just remember, nothing ever goes according to plan. Coming to you from an undisclosed location underneath a Swiss Volkswagen automobile repair shop, it's the Central Intelligence Cinema. I'm Jason Greenberg, and with me, as always, is Ben Esslinger. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason. And welcome back to Central Intelligence Cinema. We got a big movie today, man. It's a this is a big one. This is this yeah, is yeah, buddy. We are we are hitting the gold standard, if you will, of Bond oh, movies. <laughs> Wait a minute. Aren't there actually two gold standards? There's three gold standards in Bond movies, if you want to take that to its natural extension. Ah, but, indeed. I suppose there are three gold standards, two of which but, are far superior to the other one, in my opinion. Right. But that's just, well, that's just uh, me. <laughs> I, hello. Uh, <laughs> but I think you're right. This is absolutely the gold standard if you look at it from the true terminology. It, it's what every Bond film aspires to be, I think. Yes, indeed. Goldfinger, man. Wow. Craziness. I'm excited. This is this is going to be a this is a good one. This will be interesting to talk about, you know, because no one's ever talked about Goldfinger before in a podcast. No, I feel <laughs> like we're breaking new ground here, actually. It's shockingly, so yeah. I, I mean, seriously, I mean, like, why has nobody ever covered this before? I don't know. I don't and get it. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't even think it's been covered in, in media literature at all. It's almost as if people were afraid to touch the the golden calf. Oh, hey, look, the golden <laughs> calf. It's like a blind spot or something. I mean, yeah. Well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take care of that blind spot now. We're gonna we're gonna <laughs> let we're gonna really let people know what this movie is, what it's all about, uh, and, and you know, it's gonna be a very formal, uh, educated. Uh, shall I dare you? I even say scholarly look at uh, <laughs> one of the finest, I, finest. I, need, <laughs> you know, I need to issue a minor mea culpa on that one because I realized after I made those comments on the last episode I think the the thing that got to me was was actually a semantic issue of of using the term scholar if they yes. would have said if they would have said expert I would have been fine with it because there are tons and tons of bond experts. 
But when I think Bond scholars, I suddenly think universities and right. And so I think that's my tripping point. That's why I, as I said in the previous episode, my eye began to twitch when I hear the term Bond scholar. <laughs> <laughs> well, despite what I just said earlier, I can assure every one of our listeners, there's going to be zero scholarly content in this particular are, podcast. We are so not scholars. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing we're going to school you on is how to not be scholarly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we're going to class this sucker down. <laughs> you're all going to get an A in class clownism because, baby, that's what we are. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this movie. Let's do it. Stop. Look. He's gunning for trouble. Double O seven. It spells Bond. Who are you? My name is Pussy Galore. Come and purr over Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore. <laughs> The female who is all feline. Also starring Gert Rober as Goldfinger. International cheat. International menace. Okay, so Goldfinger, the third movie in the 007 canon. Released in 1964, directed by the infamous Guy Hamilton, who also directed Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. Hmm, coincidence. Goldfinger <laughs> and Man with the Golden Gun. Did he die before Goldeneye? Because maybe he could have directed that too and just had the trifecta. He you probably know, I, did. I, I can't remember. Again, we're not scholars. <laughs> uh, he was also an uncredited pre-production director on The Spy Who Loved Me. And uh, this movie won an Academy Award for sound effects. Which is really funny, too, because <laughs> it is funny that it won an Academy Award for sound effects to me, because the first time I watched through this movie for my notes for this show, my wife was sitting next to me watching, and we get to the man talk scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as usual, that's literally her least favorite scene in the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And her biggest problem with it isn't even necessarily the outright chauvinism it's how loud the smack is uh-huh. it's apparent <laughs> that he smacked her on the ass yeah it's how loud the smack is that bothers her and i'm like well i'll have you know <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's funny about the special uh, the sound effects thing so if you listen very carefully to the sound effects which i i do because it's one of my weird things i'm always looking for that wilhelm scream or something yeah, i've heard and something else. that laser sound the humming laser sound Oh, the, yeah. the, the high-pitched whistle when it's activated right. is, has been used as a high-pitched laser whistle for decades. Superman's eyes in the Christopher Reeve version, when he hit the hit vision, it's, the same it's that one. sound. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. And the other thing was, and you'll appreciate this because the depth of nerdiness in cinema <laughs> and there's no bounds inside me. The sound of the door, the, the vault door opening. Okay. At the end. Yeah. Is the same pneumatic, hydraulic, whatever sound of the doors from Aliens. Oh, okay. But, and I didn't double check this, so if I'm wrong out there to our tens of fans, you can correct me, whatever you need to do. I'm pretty (laughs) sure it's the exact same sound effect as the vault door in The Man from Uncle. Oh, 
Oh, really? Because I remember that one sounding exactly like the doors from Aliens. Ah, okay. So I don't know if that was a nod or because I've heard this sound doing the exact same thing for doors in multiple movies. They just picked it up. Part of me hopes that Guy Ritchie was like, I'm going to use the sound from Goldfinger. <laughs> but oh, I'm sorry, he would have been, I'm going to use the sound from Goldfinger. But, um, but yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Some of this, I mean, considering that those sound effects are become almost a standard for things in cinema, yeah. they must have been fairly revolutionary or at least unheard of, quote unquote, yeah. um, at the <laughs> time. So I can see where it would have won that because none of it sounded hokey, right? No, this, not this, at all. It, it all, there wasn't, any comical sounding sound effects in this, in this movie at all. Nope. Nary a slide whistle. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is interesting on a note about sound effects in general in movies is it's, it's almost the way music is pop music where pop musicians will steal little riffs or sounds from other places mm -hmm. that are familiar to people. They're creating something new but they're giving you something old that you're familiar with. So it makes you comfortable and it makes you more open to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, it, it just makes sense that sound effects are used over and over again in the same respect. Someone creates an association with a sound effect and then that gets brought along so that the next time you see a movie and they use that exact same sound effect, people are able to wrap their head around Mm -hmm. Oh, well, this sound effect just happened. So that means this. Exactly. Unless, of course, you're Ben Burton, you make sound effects for Lucasfilm, and then Lucasfilm owns every sound you ever make. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one will ever be able to pull a, uh, a tight metal cable again or whatever it was. <laughs> and make a laser that. sound. Yeah, and make a lightsaber noise or whatever he did with that thing. <laughs> do you, did you ever do that when you were a kid? I, I did not, but I, I remember watching like a behind the scenes and just yes. nerding out over. So my where I, where I grew up, um, the Southern California area, um, there's lots of those towers like everywhere you go because it's Southern California. Sure. Um, and as soon as I saw that special, man, I went out there with a baseball <laughs> bat to the nearest cable. I kept hitting and nothing was happening because I was hitting wood on it. And it was giving me kind of a sound, but not anything. Right. So my friend and I, we went around, we looked for rocks. We found a good size rock to fit in your hand. Right. Man. Like, yeah, star troopers. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I digress. <laughs> yeah, we probably should. <laughs> we probably should. All right. Well, the screenplay was written by uh, Richard Maybaum, who has adapted nearly every Fleming novel. And uh, Paul Dane, or Dean, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, um, who helped with uh, Planet of the Apes movies and Murder on the Orient Express, the 1974 version. Um, Photography-wise, the director of photography was Ted Moore, who also did Dr. No, From Russia with Love, Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. Um, so much like in the modern era, Eon's original executive producers, uh, Cubby and Harry Saltzman, they sort of like to stick to the same team for as long as possible. So that whole Hamilton, Maybaum, Moore, and sometimes Barry team was was very much the first team for all the all those initial Bond films. I don't know if the I'm trying to think of what I want to say here about photography. I think I think for the time it was spectacular. I think yes. I think that what I sometimes forget is I've been spoiled. You know, I grew up in an era when 
you know, there was a lot more steady cam. There was a lot more uh, tracking shots. There were mm-hmm. crane um, shots, uh, everything. Yeah, crane shots. And, and this pretty much came out in that earlier era when you had some of that, but it wasn't on the scale that we have it today. And so I remember thinking when I first popped the, the Blu-ray back in for the first time in, in quite a while, and that shot, that aerial shot, of the welcome to Miami beach or whatever it says. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the shot. I'm like, well, that looks sideways, you know, like it, it it didn't look, it didn't look straight or anything. You know, why isn't there a gimbal on the helicopter? Well, they didn't really have (laughs) the ability to have a gimbal on a helicopter like that. They barely had helicopters at that point. Exactly. So, (laughs) but I will say that. Watching it on Blu-ray, it is striking. It does feel like I'm watching like a painting or something. It's very, it's not stylistic all the time. Yes. Um, but I will say the craftsmanship is certainly there. And oh, I will absolutely. Say, and every once in a while, you do get some stylistic moments. I mean, I do think about when you've got the mobster meeting. Um, there's a bunch of cool tracking shots in there, like on when it pushes forward at the bar. Mm-hmm. And, and a couple of those shots in there are very cool and stylistic. But overall, I just, I just feel like the craftsmanship is there. It's not overly stylistic, but that's sort of representative of, of the way that Bond films are in general. Up until the modern era, we haven't really gotten people who put their signature on on the photography itself often yeah well you see a lot of the the standard issue wide and medium shots there aren't a whole lot of you know, up close shots. When I watched it, particularly on the second viewing, um, what I noticed was there was a lack of grandiose scenery shots. Like all the stuff that's in Switzerland, if it had been filmed now, would have had sweeping vistas of the Alps. Oh yeah, and you would have you would have had the an over a really good overhead shot of the road that the the Aston and the Mustang are driving on. Oh um, yeah, it was like and don't get me wrong, I'm sure Ted Moore, if he had the money, would have probably had a bunch of shots like that. Sure. Nobody budgeted stuff like that back in the '60s. Yeah. So from the standpoint that you even got to see the Alps at all, right? As, which wasn't actually the Alps, from what I saw in the trivia, it was all filmed in England. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, right. I mean, the scene that's always striking to me in this is when they're pulling into the fuel station when he drops off Jill. Mm-hmm. It's just that long road going out to nowhere, and behind it are those misty mountains. Yeah. And I'm just like. That would have been so punched with color these days. Yes. It would have just been so over enhanced yes. that Very you may have so. lost the fact that you're supposed to focus on the cool car with the cool people in it. Yes, I definitely see that. I definitely agree with that. But yeah, there were no egregious things. The lighting was good. Um, yeah. The interior stuff that they filmed in, in the studio was excellent. Oh my god! I think god, where yeah. where it lacked, I think where it lacked was stuff that was outside. Yes, Other than absolutely. Gold- I think the exterior shots were where you know it, sh- it kind of showed just maybe just a touch of a weakness. Although I will say there were a couple establishing shots when they get to the stud ranch that are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, when when that that horse drawn carriage type thing is is plotting along and and the and there's a follow can like a follow yeah. shot with it that's yeah. gorgeous that's a gorgeous yeah. shot can i say the worst shots are the uh, all the soldiers falling down oh <laughs> yes i would agree with that although i was going to save this for later but man i would kill 
to be even just like a, a an assistant or a or a anybody on that shoot. I would love to be there just to hear somebody go, "Ready, fall!" <laughs> and then everybody falls to the ground at once. It's funny. The trivia said that it was the same group of soldiers. They just kept rearranging them at different places. <laughs> well, that makes sense. <laughs> You've seen uh, one, you've seen them all. <laughs> they're all wearing green. Who cares? Indeed. Um, so by the numbers, obviously, this was a massive, massive movie. Uh, the budget in 1964 was $3 million, which for adjusted for inflation, that's about $25 million today. And the global box office kitty was $125 million, which in today's dollars is just over a billion one billion billion dollars. dollars. So it's, pinky it's to your lips, people. <laughs> so it's right up there with you know Skyfall and everything else. So quite the quite the take. Um, music wise, John Barry did the music, which is fantastic. Oh yeah, and of course we've got you know one of the most, if not the most. Well, I, I'd say Diamonds Are Forever might be the most iconic song, but. Goldfinger is awfully close with one of the most iconic songs in the franchise. It's Shirley Bassey. I mean, here's the thing: out of all more? the Bond, out of all the Bond songs that came before and after this one, mm-hmm. there are none of them that integrate the Bond music as well as this one does. They're almost interchangeable because it's right there in the song, and it's not. Yes, it's not wedged in there. It's not yeah. somebody putting up. It's right. just. It just seamlessly, and you hear it through the whole movie. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, um, and I, there are other ones that do it for sure. You, mm-hmm. you could work in Bond themes into anything. It's not like it's that sure. hard. But this one is just so. Yeah, it's all James Bond. Yeah, so James Bond. <laughs> well, and I will say too that as um, as Bond has entered the modern era, I feel like there has been this growing there seems to be a slight growing divide between the artist that makes the theme song and the composer who does the score yes and which is unfortunate because i always tend to really favor when you can hear the theme song weaved into the score and that's done so well i mean even in in the actual theme song the it's it's the other way you've got the bond theme uh, bleeding into the theme song mhm and in the score, you've got the theme song bleeding into the score. Right. Where, whereas things aren't so seamlessly integrated in, in modern Bond movies nearly as much, which is unfortunate. But Well, that's because, you know, they all figured out they can make money by getting more famous people to do the music and then put it on the top 40. Indeed. Put it on the radio, kids. <laughs> or I guess as they say these days, streaming that, baby. I don't know. Did they say that really? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, basically, this whole uh, this whole movie was a uh, a grand slam, or <laughs> should I say, an Operation Grand Slam? <laughs> do you, you want to go to Denny's after this and get a grand slam? Because that's all I can think about. <laughs> So, uh, looking at our main characters here, obviously we have the great Sir Thomas Sean Connery, the man, the legend, the icon, the man who was dubbed Scotland's greatest living national treasure. This is Connery at, in my opinion, his near best. You would, you might argue that it was his best. I argue that it's his second best to me. Mm. But 
regardless, not his worst. Regardless, he is utterly fantastic in this movie. Um, Absolutely. It was certainly, you know, 2020 was certainly a rough year. The fact that we lost both Sir Sean and Honor Blackman, uh, Honor Blackman um, in the same year, just fucking tragic. Um, well, but you know, people of an age, right? Indeed, indeed. And uh, but this is certainly a nice thing to remember them by. Um, Absolutely. I don't know. This this movie is fantastic. I will say when we get to the end, I'll sort of share my my thoughts about how I why I rank it, where I rank it, and everything else. But I will put up here right now that I do think that Goldfinger might be the most important Bond movie. Not necessarily the best, but I think it is the most important Bond movie. Because without this movie, you don't have you don't get everything that follows. Yeah, it really is. Um Anyway, I digress. Going back to the care, all the characters that we've got, we've got uh, Naja Regine as Bonita, who also, fun fact, she was, she also plays the mistress of Karim Bey, the ally of Bond in From Russia with Love. So, if so she you, was a Bond girl twice. She was a Bond girl twice, indeed. So she's hmm. the she's the Bond girl at the very beginning of this movie, and she's a you could consider her a Bond girl if she's the mistress of another character in another Bond movie. She does make two appearances, so well, maybe that's why she got hit on the head in Goldfinger because they were done with her. We're done with you. <laughs> Moving right along, <laughs> we've, <laughs> we've got uh, Shirley Eaton as the lovely, lovely Jill Masterson. Uh, we've I got. Love gold. Sorry. <laughs> Had to get one of those in there. <laughs> We've got Margaret Nolan as Dink in her brief appearance. Uh, Tanya Malay as Tilly Masterson. And, of course, the one and only Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore. Pussy. 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 She is fantastic in this role. Can I just say, just in general... Pussy Galore, despite her name, is one of the strongest. Yes. Uh, one of the strongest Bond girls in the entire canon. I mean, right. It's, it's unfortunate that every once in a while she's subject to some 1960s good old fashioned you know, male chauvinism and misogyny. But, you know, um, I appreciate yeah. I appreciate yeah. I appreciate the fact that she is such a strong character in this and is able to sort of leverage her sexuality and her capability all in mm-hmm. one because a lot of bond women even after this movie were certainly don't have that same level of, <laughs> of capability and strength so no, I mean, I think the the probably the closest relative to this character would be Vesper Lid from uh, Casino. Casino Royale. Yeah, that could stand toe to toe with Bond on everything. And then when you take out the '60s, you know, yes. male gaze bullcrap, you uh, <laughs> you end up getting a very solid character that's an equal to Bond rather than one that's inferior in any way. Right. Uh, so we've got some returning characters. Of course, we've got Bernard Lee back as M. We've got Lois Maxwell back as Money Penny, and Money I might Penny. say that she is fantastic. The scene between her and Bond in Goldfinger is just—it's perfect. I love it. Um, and then, of course, we've got the great Desmond Llewellyn back as Q. Of course, yes, pay attention, uh, 007. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, and then, of course, other notable characters. We've got Sek Linder as Felix Leiter, which, oh boy. You know, I did prefer Jack Lord as Felix and Dr. No. Um, fun fact, despite the fact that Sek Linder looks much older than Jack Lord, he's actually the same age <laughs> as Jack Lord was. <laughs> but the only reason Jack Lord didn't reprise his role is that he wanted too much money. And so he ended up losing the role because of that. Yeah, that's an MO for him. Uh, he also lost the role of Captain Kirk for the same reason. I, I think we're for the better on that one. Uh, well, William Shatner would definitely agree. Um, and uh, my <laughs> my impression of William Shatner would definitely agree because I don't have a Jack Lord loaded and ready to go. Um, but, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is that you would think he would do going in that Felix Leiter was a secondary character. Yeah. You know, you, you can't just... He was you, you can't, can't demand just demand more money when you're Robin. You can demand all the money you want when you're Batman. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's a perfect analogy. <laughs> We've got a uh, Gert Frobe as Oric Goldfinger. Uh, he only spoke German for the most part. So the voiceover was done by British actor, Michael Collins. And then we've got Harold Sakata as Oddjob. And a uh, fun fact about him, he was actually an Olympic weightlifter who won a silver medal for the United States. In, what? Uh, yeah. In 1948, he won the, the silver for uh, weightlifting. Huh. So that's fun. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's odd. <laughs> I, thought, I, I, I guess I always thought he was from Japan for real. Yeah, I did too. But yeah, he's Japanese American. So kind of cool. Yeah, I guess if he'd actually talked, we might have been able to pick that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Instead of just making him go, fire bad. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think of him as a henchman or just as his performance? Uh, well, I mean, they didn't give him a lot to work with. So, no. And I think, I think Odd Job is, is what everybody thinks of when they think of a Bond henchman. Mm hmm. You know, for all the other reasons with this movie, I mean, it's it's the prototype for everything. Right. Exactly. So, he's interesting you know, looking. He's got a he's got a unique weapon. Yep. Like you said, he sets down the format for every henchman going forward. Right. But, you know, I, I was thinking um, about this yesterday, actually. Other than Odd Job and, and Jaws, are there really any henchmen henchmen in any of the Bond films? Because I, I really couldn't think of any. Well, Mr. Hinks in Spectre, but that's way, way down. You know, that's all the yeah. way down. I guess Hervé Villachez was in The Man with the Golden Gun, but uh, what was his name? Tip Top or something like that? Oh, Knickknack. Uh, Knickknack. Tip yeah. Top, Knickknack, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm, not, I'm trying to think if there's any other sort of non-speaking, just growling. Well, no, that's, I mean, like I said, I, I, I know that there's always... Oh, you got the two guys from uh, Diamonds Are Forever, I guess you could look yeah, at. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Wint and Mr. Kid. My favorite henchman, actually. We're, I'm going to go back to your favorite movie, The Living Daylights. <laughs> but uh, but Necros, he's, yeah. that, he's that blonde guy that's yeah. very capable because he was, you know, ex-KGB. And right. so the guy with the uh, explosive milk jugs, yeah. he was yeah. he was a badass in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> You'll set explosive jugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Explosive. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I guess Grace Jones would probably qualify too from few to a kill. Yes, for sure. Certainly more than well, even if, uh, on the top, I guess. Yes. Although she on wasn't nearly is... as interesting as Grace Jones was. 
I suppose, I suppose from a character perspective, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, her way of killing people was a little more entertaining, but uh, as far as personality yeah. types go, I like Grace Jones a lot better. But that's just me. That's just you. <laughs> you know, I, I the funny thing about Odd Job, uh, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably touch on this again later. But it's funny that uh, you know, he's deadly accurate throwing that hat. Yeah. But the one time he needs to use it the most, he, gets, he doesn't even get within four feet of yeah. James Bond and hits it exactly where Bond wanted him to hit it. Right. So I don't really know how effective a bowler is uh, as, as a ranged weapon. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure what the range or the. Well, it's just funny that in one scene he's got pinpoint accuracy, and then in another scene he can't hit the broad side of a barn. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know I, the character. I don't know. Do do we need deep development in a henchman? Probably not. Probably. Not. Um, the thing I remember the most about Jaws from uh, he was in two movies, I think. Right, uh, Richard yeah. Keel. I yeah. remember him biting through the cable with his teeth, yeah. and I remember him talking. And I think it was for your eyes only, wasn't it? Uh, or where he walks off with the girl with the pigtails. That's and the Moonraker. That's, That's Moonraker. Okay. Yeah. I remember him talking. Mm-hmm. And then walking off into the sunset or whatever with the nerdy girl. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't remember anything like that with odd job other than him cutting the head off of a statue. Yes. Just a mute that growls and <laughs> does, does the work and crutch golf ball. Yeah. And is faithful to the very end. Oh, absolutely. Which seems super ridiculous when you think about it. You know, at yeah. some point in time, you got to cover your own hide. That's a nuclear bomb that's going to go off. Right. Well, especially considering the fact that Goldfinger himself has no loyalty to anyone except himself. He's willing to just shoot his own men in the back. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I think that I, it was it was funny because, uh, you know, I didn't realize that they were Korean until I watched this again. It was a detail that had never yeah. really kind of seeped into my brain on watchings. Yeah. So I always, I don't know why I always assumed they were j- Japanese, maybe like I assumed he was Japanese. Right. Um, and so uh, there's definitely some cold war undercurrents there. You yeah. Know? Maybe that was some of Goldfinger's reasoning for just being willing and, and having no qualms about laying to waste some of the, well, some of the blue uniform men. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, I think maybe I'm going to, I'm going to put on my scholarly hat now. Oh, okay. um, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, you're 10, 12 years outside of uh, the Korean conflict. You're mm-hmm. probably, what, 23, 24 years after the end of World War II. And I feel like there's definitely this this layer there of United States imperialism mm-hmm. and its effect on uh, the Asian countries. And, sure. you know... Um, you know they they're they're culturally they they sort of adapted to the uh, the American model of things while integrating right. their own stuff, sure. and that maybe this whole fierce loyalty thing was sort of like uh, some sort of I don't know I'm, I'd probably give the screenwriter way more credit for this than what I'm thinking <laughs> yeah but um, but maybe there was sort of a touch of well he's loyal because we're you know Goldfinger's the capitalist right. the European capitalist and oh and, I see what you you're know, saying so see it's, what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's probably total BS, but I felt like being a smarty smart today. So I thought thought I'd throw that one in there. Yes, a little (laughs) bit of education and culture in each and every episode. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suppose we should get into the the proper here. Oh, all right. Okay. 
We jump into the uh, pre-title sequence here. And uh, first of all, actually, before we even get into the pre-title, pre-title sequence, can I just quickly say how irritating it is that Sean Connery does not do the actual gun barrel walk? It's just, I mean, come on. I mean, <laughs> it's so frustrating to me that we don't get a Sean Connery. Does he? I don't think he does it ever. I'm not sure. I'd have to, I'd have to I, go back and look, but I know. And if I, you don't know, I know I don't know. <laughs> moving on. Um, so we begin somewhere in Latin America and, uh, we get, ah, yes, the old, uh, pigeon on your head trick to hide while snorkeling. Um, although I will was say, the, was the snorkel in the pigeon head? Because I didn't see a snorkel anywhere else. So I have to wonder. I think, I think, who knows? I don't know. I will say this. I will say that the, that the pigeon looked legit. I mean, watching it a couple times now. It looks like a real bird. So, I mean, at least that part of it works. I mean, it's still, you can still obviously see a human being underneath said bird, but <laughs> shh, don't tell anybody. Um, so anyway, so we begin with Bond and he comes out of the water and he, and he throws the, <laughs> throws the bird into the water with his, <laughs> with his snorkel and his goggles or whatever. And, uh, he gets out of the water in the wetsuit and he uses what has got to be one of the earliest incarnations of the grappling hook gun that I I think I've ever seen in a movie um, mm-hmm. to get over this wall and into this field full of a, what looks like a, a bunch of big water silos. I don't I don't know what exactly they're supposed to look like. Obviously, that's not what they actually are once he gets inside. But anyway, so he gets over this wall and I love how the security guard that's like looking at the grappling hook coming over the wall, he's just kind of like dirt. He's just not even he's just like, well, that's interesting. He doesn't bother to check it out. He doesn't move forward. He doesn't do anything. He just stands there and watches. And then Bond just takes the guard out before he can do anything. But it it's just, he's just waiting. There are a couple times in this movie where bad guys are basically just standing there waiting for Bond to take him out. Like, I'm ready. Take me out. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, for, the fight choreography in general is kind of stilted. Uh, yeah. There's an awkward moment coming right around the corner here. Yes. Um, so, so anyway, he takes out the guard and he makes his way to the valve opening of of this nearest water silo thing. And he finds this little secret button that opens a secret door and he gets inside and it's apparently a drug laboratory. And he's got this big tube of plastic explosives, I'm guessing in it, you know, this tube. And uh, he walks over to these orange drums that are labeled nitromethane, which I did look up. And I guess it's a little like gasoline, but it's sometimes using cleaning supplies. So I failed chemistry. I don't know much beyond that. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, so so he squeezes out all the plastic explosive onto these drums, and he and he arms the uh, the detonator. And this is where I made one of my first observations. That sort of uh, I observed this because as a professional video editor, I was like, oh yeah, they did this back then. It was just fun to watch that they don't do a lot of cutting in in old movies like this in movies in the sixties, they didn't edit quickly. There wasn't quick edits. It wasn't fast back and forth, lots of different angles and stuff like that because a, it was hard mm-hmm. and B it was expensive. So this is when we started getting some of this use of speeding up footage to, to speed up what the action was. 
So you see that as he's arming this detonator, you see how quickly his hands are moving. It's obviously all sped up. So, so instead of cutting to a different angle to accelerate what's happening, they're just speeding up the film and staying on the same <laughs> shot. And they do that like in multiple, actually, even before this, when he's in the water and he takes his, his goggles off, they, they speed that part up too. <laughs> and I understand it when they're doing like action scenes and they're trying to make the fighting seem more explosive. Right. But it's more peculiar to me when I see it being done to simply tell the story faster. They're just trying to like get this out of the way. Yes, he's finished detonating this. He can go now. <laughs> you know. So anyway. It's the it's 60s version of a montage. Yeah, exactly. So then Bond quickly leaves this little lab and <laughs> no one seemed to care apparently that the guard was knocked out because no one apparently followed him as he went back over the wall. So anyway, he gets over the wall, <laughs> gets over the wall. He ditches the wetsuit to reveal the perfectly pressed tuxedo and a flower handy. <laughs> and he makes his way into this nightclub where he makes eye contact with Benita, who's shaking her thing. And um, so at that point, he uh, checks his Rolex for the time and then boom, and the, uh, the explosives go off and everyone in the club rushes out except for Bond, who meets his contact there. His contact warns that Bond is, is going to be watched after this. And this is also when we sort of confirm that it was a drug laboratory because Bond says at least he won't be using heroin-flavored bananas to, re to finance revolutions. So <laughs> the, the, the very first Bond mock for yes. the movie. Yes, indeed. So then Bond goes back to his hotel room where Benita is in the bathtub now and she gets out and he kisses her. And, and as they're kissing, he sees uh, the, the thug with the billy club sneaking up behind him in the reflection of the girl's eyes, which is a great shot. Yeah, I it's, love that. That's fantastic. So then naturally, Bond uses Benita as a shield. <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Spins her around, lets her get hit with the billy club, knocks her out, and then the fight ensues. And, you know, Bond sends the guy into the bathtub and he reaches for the gun. He reaches for, and then Bond reaches for the fan. And uh, that's when we get the. Uh, shocking. Oh. Positively shocking. Yes. Positively shocking. <laughs> so, you know, the funny thing is, is uh, one would think that the gun would be very hot after having been in the hand of the guy who was getting electrocuted. But Bond just picks it up like it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just put that right back where it belongs. <laughs> that was also my very first judo chop moment. Uh, it, you know, stuck with the Austin Powers in my head. Anytime somebody goes over John James Bond, judo chop. <laughs> So from there, we, we cut to the titles, and uh, this is the second set of images and credits shown on the bodies of naked ladies, <laughs> the first being from Russia with Love. I don't think she's naked. Well, they're not naked. They're just pseudo-naked. They're, wearing, I, uh, they're wearing bikinis. In, in the interest of science, I was uh, <laughs> watching the credits yes, I'm with sure. a keen eye to whether they were showing naked women or not. Because I felt like I didn't remember any of the 60s versions having naked women. It wasn't until the Roger Moore era where you got that the full got silhouettes. Yeah. But, but it was full silhouettes. It wasn't, you didn't see like reflections and, and see the girl behind it. 
Right. And um, I'm like, she's wearing a gold bikini. She is not naked. Well, I guess my theory stands. Thank you, science. Yes. Only only for science, I'm sure. Only for science. <laughs> so we get the great song from Shirley Bassey. And then we open on Miami, Florida. And like I said before, <laughs> that aerial shot is crooked. And I can't. That's all I see when I see that shot. I'm just so I'm so spoiled from modern film. Uh, but that's when we see Felix Leiter, old, old ass sec lender as Felix Leiter at the resort. And it just kills me that as he's walking to find Bond, that the sexy girls that are like lying on the, on the beach chairs, turn their head and gawk at him and smile. Like he's some prize. Like <laughs> he looks like my grandfather. Oh my goodness. <laughs> anyway. So he happens upon bond. Who's currently on holiday and he's currently getting a massage from dink. And then we get my wife's least favorite moment in the entire franchise of bond. The whole Dink, say goodbye. Man talk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, you're not giving credit to how he says it. You know, Felix versus Dink. Dink versus Felix. Say goodbye, Dink. It is more playful. I do think there's an element of playfulness to it. And I actually have heard some women defend this moment. But we're going to undercut some of the things that Connery does in this movie a lot. I think it's important to point out some of the strengths in his acting yes in some of the more subtle moments that Absolutely. really are underplayed in, in this film and that's one of them he comes off as being warm genuine human and maybe a misogynist flir- but but still but maybe more flirtatious than yes than implying dominance exactly necessarily exactly so from here felix gives bond directive from mi6 that he's to observe Goldfinger. Sounds like a French nail varnish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. Whoever wrote it that is. line. <laughs> uh, who is apparently on the up and up as far as CIA is concerned. Um, he owns a stud farm, etc. He's got all his licenses for smelting gold or <laughs> so forth. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I love gold. I know. I love gold. It's so hard not to go there. Um, I know. So Leiter points out, or points him out at rather, and lets him know that he's been uh, taking this other guy to the cleaners, playing gin. And Bond obviously suspects foul play immediately and starts walking around, takes a look, and he and he he can tell that that somebody's looking at at the other guy's cards, and so he goes up to Goldfinger's room and. I just love how cheeky and charming he is with that maid in the hallway. I know, right? It is so good when she's like, that's Mr. Goldfinger's room. And he's like, yes, I know. Thank you. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> and then he tells me that she's a one, like she's sweet or something like that. Got yeah, a sweet girl. Yeah. He's like, you're quite sweet. <laughs> or something like that. Just walks right. in. So it's, it's, it's funny. It's like, he, it's a he, very he's, Ferris bueller kind of moment. Almost. It he's so, absolutely is. He's, he's so, so charming. charming. Yeah. He just gets away with it. Cause he's right. just big smile on his face. And <laughs> exact, which, you know, when you think about it, 50 year old Sean Connery couldn't have pulled that off. Oh no. Right. No. He, you know, he reached a point where he was just gruff Sean Connery and that's it. Yeah. But, you know, young 30-something. How old was he when he did this? this I think he was, he was still in his 20s, maybe. 
Nah, he... I think he, he had to be in his 30s because he was in World War II. So Okay, okay. But, um, I mean, he just, I don't know. <laughs> He's just, yeah. There's just, yep. there's just something about 60s Sean Connery. Oh, just, yeah. It's just, He's, he's just I, got I it. He yeah. just got it. He's just got it. I mean, he just, you're quite sweet. <laughs> he just walks right in like it's nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, right in this area is also when my wife gave another note. And I love to, this is going to be a reoccurring theme for anyone listening. <laughs> I'm going to always refer back to my wife with her notes on movies that we watch because they always prove to be fruitful and mm-hmm. usually more observant than my own. <laughs> and this is when she, because he's wearing the, the, the infamous blue, uh, the powder blue romper. Yeah. <laughs> and my wife says, how are his testicles not visible in that thing? <laughs> <laughs> So, so <laughs> it's like a miracle of modern science. Or something. Well, you know, to be fair, the the swim trunks he was wearing were quite snug, so they may have had everything properly in place before yeah, he put so the romper on. Lots of support underneath, so you know. Anyway. By the way, where can I get me one of those rompers? Because I really, really want one. Well, you know, <laughs> real talk. Orla Bar Brown issued reissued that that romper for a while i don't think it's available really? anymore but it was it was pricey too they wanted i think four four to five hundred bucks for it but they re they remade it to the t they re- <laughs> can, can you can you imagine seeing daniel craig in a blue cherry romper oh boy <laughs> i don't think i could actually <laughs> i don't think there's any other bond that could pull that outfit off other than sean connery here's the thing though i could see i couldn't see daniel craig as bond in a powder blue romper i could see daniel craig the person the actor wearing a, a powder blue okay. romper. I think I he's the type that. of I, I think he's the type of guy that might actually wear one of those on holiday. <laughs> well, next time we see him, we should ask. I'll say this. Yeah. Well, you know, he's due over for dinner anytime soon. So um, <laughs> I'll ask him. <laughs> but uh so anyway, I digress. We get back into this. <laughs> so he heads into the room. And then onto the balcony where we find the absolutely stunning Jill Masterson. Holy smokes. Mm-hmm. Beautiful woman. Um, looking through binoculars and letting Goldfinger know his opponent's cards using the little in-ear radio thingy. And um, so that's when the Bond charm number two moment is because he just walks in like he owns the place. He just... Yep. He just wa- walks onto that balcony and and all she can say is, hey, who are you? And he's a Bond, James Bond. And he just walks right up, gets right in her personal space and takes over the radio. It's just, it's it's impressive. I know he's a good looking guy, but it's like, is, is that really what <laughs> would happen if... Uh, if a man just came into your hotel room that you've never seen before in your life and just <laughs> gets right in your business. <laughs> but I digress. Only if you're Sean Connery. Only if you're Sean Connery, apparently. Uh, so at this point, uh, Bond threatens to call the police on Goldfinger and we get that lovely line, you know, now hear this, Mr. Goldfinger, your luck's about to change and uh, forces him to lose. And of course, naturally, this charms the shit out of Masterson, 
who then meets Bond for dinner at the, quote, best place in town, a.k.a. his hotel room. <laughs> yeah, buddy. So after a little roll in the hay, we get the re- the requisite one-liner where the radio news is saying the president said he was completely satisfied, to which Bond replies, that makes two of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at this point, Bond gets up to get a properly chilled bottle of Don Perignon, and that's when we get the Beatles line, too, about you don't drink. Yes, you don't. You don't drink Don Perignon that's above 38 degrees Fahrenheit. Just like you don't listen to the Beatles without earmuffs. (laughs) Exactly. And that's, of course, when Oddjob sneaks in and judo chop. Judo chop. (laughs) Knocks him out. So how do we rate Connery's knocked out acting? (laughs) I think it's actually pretty decent. (laughs) Well, he seems he's definitely expressing the fact that he's hurt. Yes. But then he just kind of goes, er. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my wife thought it was funny that he kind of itches his nose before completely being knocked out. He as he rolls over, he kind of itches, and then he's out. Uh (laughs) Let me scratch this and out. (laughs) I don't want any snot coming out of my nose if I'm unconscious. So when he awakens, Jill is of course dead on the bed, covered in gold, and um, it is quite a shocking moment. Um, Even even though. You know, not being of that generation and seeing a ton of movies with a lot of graphic violence, you know, where it was a lot more common to see see graphic violence. But even that uh, must have been, you know, even that to me was shocking, much less for somebody who saw it back in the 60s. It must have been truly shocking back then. Right. Well, you know, and it's funny. So you can't die from the reason they said she died. Oh, from from skin. I mean, uh, yeah. There's a lot of people dying in this movie from things that you can't actually die from. And we'll, we'll get into that as we go. But that asphyxiation thing is total bullshit. Um, and if they ever remake this movie, I hope somebody says they killed her, then painted her in gold because it's, it's just, it's bullshit. Uh, and every time I watch this movie, I'll think it's bullshit. Bullshit. It would be funny other- if they actually corrected, if they did do a remake and did a actual correction. Oh, so they yep. died because of, of skin asphyxiation. Was- right. And, and, you know, like Q or somebody would be like, well, no, that's not a thing. No, 007, <laughs> that's not a thing. She was strangled. <laughs> um, exactly. And the other thing that I always think of is that, Odd job had to sit in that room with buckets of gold paint and paint her and not get on, not get any paint on anything else in that room. Right. And not hope that 007 doesn't wake up in the period. How many times did he have to judo chop 007 to get that paint job done? It might've taken a couple chops. <laughs> did he just carry the body over to like a big vat of gold paint and then just dunk <laughs> the body in and then let it dry. And then he brings it back. I mean, the logistics of what was done there. <laughs> <laughs> there's a stretches lot of the already stretched credibility of the whole scene we'll see and what's that's what's funny about this this movie is one after another of those type of moments where people are dying in the most unnecessarily difficult way possible mm-hmm. you've got you've got that you've got the guy in the car crunching that we'll talk about in a little bit but like <laughs> he could have saved himself so much time well, and then, and obviously, this is meant to be a statement to Bond, right? But at the same time, it's it's awfully difficult. <laughs> it's awfully complicated. I mean, wasn't it Quantum of Solace where Strawberry Fields died yes. in a similar manner? But it was oil, was it not? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. And wasn't the oil all over the bed too? Yes, it was much sloppier. It was much- so much more realistic that she died from petrochemicals in her body right. than she was painted with a teeny tiny delicate paintbrush to get just the right strokes. Yes. Well, also in Quantum <laughs> of Solace, she drowned from the oil. Right. She didn't have skin asphyxiation. Right. So. Which you could also, you know, if Ajab literally did dunk her in a tank full of gold paint, she could have died from that too. Yeah. They could have said she drowned in gold paint and it would have made more sense. So we wouldn't be having right. the silly, the uh, silly yeah. discussion. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I hate to derail things, but this is something that's bothered me about this movie for decades. And this is my chance to finally get it out. So I'm done. I feel better. We'll talk about airplanes later and I might get into another tiff again, but yes. otherwise I should be good. I should be good up until we get to the middle of the movie where the next girl dies. But anyway, yes. Okay. Continue. Yes. So he awakens and Jill's dead on the bed covered in gold. He contacts Felix and tells him to come by his room because of Jill's death. And it wasn't until uh, multiple viewings that I realized that Felix on the phone says, what, Dink? And and he's like, no, Jill mm-hmm. Masterson. And and it just, for some reason, I didn't even like, it didn't even register that it probably, it would have made way more sense for it to be Dink. And then that's, right. that's when I suddenly thought, well, wait, where's Dink? Because <laughs> wasn't Dink on holiday with him? No, I think she was just. I think she was just a masseuse at the at the hotel. Oh, okay. She just happened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, one little fun fact: just being a a, uh, a kid who grew up in the late '80s, early '90s, uh, the music composition used when Bond wakes up and finds Jill Masterson dead is also what the mid '90s group, the Sneaker Pimps, sampled on the hit song uh, Six Underground. When when I watched this scene, that's all I could think of because I, I heard those little notes, the doon, 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 doon. Because <laughs> that was a big song in the 90s. So anyway, <laughs> but I digress. So we cut back to Bond at MI6 with M and he explains that Jill, Bond explains that Jill died of skin suffocation, which is not a thing. Um, but, but then explains <laughs> how it could work. Which I think is even funnier. Yes. It happens yes. with some cabaret dancers. You have to leave a small base or patch empty at the base of the spine to allow it to breathe. Well, what does the spine have to do with breathing? <laughs> well, if you're gonna lie, at least have a have make it <laughs> uh-huh. cre- create an elaborate out. <laughs> you're you're talking about Star Trek physics. Okay, I get this. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> So Bond indicates it's obviously Goldfinger's work and M at that point kind of explodes because he was irritated that Bond even intervened in the first place and says that it shouldn't be personal and that he was supposed to only observe, not borrow his girlfriend. (laughs) And uh, Bond then says that he could conduct the mission as expected of him if he knew what it was actually about. And you can tell that um, this is Sean Connery does a really good job in here of sort of brimming with frustration over not right. being not being told a whole lot about what his actual mission is or why he's observing this guy. He has no idea what's going on whatsoever. He's not even being told what to look for. Right. Maybe on also, purpose. Yeah. Also, I have to point out he does a good job of of showing contrite and frustrated at the same time in this scene. Yes. <laughs> you know, because he's he's apologetic for being James Bond to M, but at the same time, he's like, you want me to be James Bond, you got to tell me what I need to do to be James Bond. 
Exactly. So from there, M tells him to uh, meet him that evening, black tie affair, uh, in what ends up being a meeting with uh, Colonel Smithers. Um, although just before that, we get this great, great scene. Again, like I said earlier, maybe my favorite Bond and Money Penny scene of the Connery era, where the chemistry between them is just great, mm-hmm. uh, just flirty. She's like, you know, are we going out tonight or whatever? Or, you know, and, and he's like, well, I've, I have to do work and, oh, what's work's name or whatever this evening. And then, mm-hmm. and then that's when M breaks in on the phone. The, the best part. Yeah. And he's like, <laughs> actually, he's coming with me. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Bond is able to, of course, leverage that and say, well, see, I was telling the truth all along. And <laughs> Here, here's something that I may have realized for the first time in all of my time on earth. <laughs> Money Penny's not English. Oh, really? She does not have an English accent. So I looked a little bit, and uh, Lois Maxwell is actually Canadian. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I didn't notice to, that either. Yeah. She moved to England with her husband, who, oh, if wow. I remember correctly, must have pa- I passed away. And so she just began an acting career. But I'm listening to her, and I'm like, she doesn't sound English. And so I rewound it to listen to it again. And I mean, she's very clearly speaking with a an American slash Canadian accent, but, you know, very well enunciated, not slangy. Sure. But there's no English accent there at all. Wow. You know, and I feel like that's something that Brits probably picked up on immediately, but us, mm-hmm. being, us being us, it's like, it's hard for that to even register on our hearing scales. Right. Well, particularly since I thought she was English the whole time. Yeah. And the <laughs> fact that everyone, everyone else around her is, and mm-hmm. she doesn't have the annoying American accent, the, you know, that exactly. (laughs) It's a much more sophisticated, eloquent. She's speaking the queen's English with an accent rather than that ridiculous American that people speak in America. Yeah. So after we get that lovely scene, um, we cut to the black tie dinner with Colonel Smithers at a very, 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 very long table. Yeah, what is the deal? <laughs> I mean, that shot as it tracks backwards, it just the table just goes on forever. I mean, this is the most, this is so extremely old white British shit going on here. It's like just <laughs> the oldest, whitest, Britishest cigars are being passed around and Smithers is complaining about the brandy. And <laughs> although we get this funny moment with Bond detecting what's wrong with it <laughs> and M gets really annoyed, where, you know, basically Colonel Smithers is giving the lecture here at 007. <laughs> but then as they pass the brandy around in shot, no less. Yes. And it makes its way to M. M sniffs it. And he's like, oh, he's right. And he looks at Bond and Bond's like, hello. <laughs> this is yet another thing that they establish in the Bond franchise is Bond knows everything. Yes. You know, going forward <laughs> in every Bond movie, he always seems to know something weird that he shouldn't know. You know, like later on, he knows everything in the world about butterflies. And then in another thing, he knows about Fabergé eggs suddenly. And it's just, how the fuck do you know all this shit, Bond? (laughs) Bond knew how to get into the silo in the pre-title sequence. Exactly. He knew where that button was. (laughs) Exactly. Bond knows everything. Everything. So, So Smithers starts talking about gold, about how it's a perfect currency for criminals and smuggling because it can be melted down making it untraceable. 
and then explains that Goldfinger has got loads of gold, which originated in Britain, but has moved to other markets to sell at a higher cost. Um, since he's a legitimate international jeweler, he's allowed to own gold melting equipment. But that being said, they want Bond to investigate to see if he's moving the gold in some sort of illegal fashion, because if they had proof, then the Brits could recover those holdings. Yes, we uh, could take all the money back for ourselves. Yes, because that's what we do with the British government. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, Bond thinks that he should meet Goldfinger socially. And that's when he's shown this bar of Nazi gold that he can use as bait. Which I have to point out, mm -hmm. probably the most realistic bar of Nazi gold I think I've ever seen in a movie. It's not emblazoned with a gigantic swastika with an eagle attached on it with all the shiny and pretty. It just looks like a, a gold bar and it with looks a rough, stamp in it. Yeah, like a rough stamp. And it looks yeah. heavy, too. It looks convincingly right. heavy. Right. So I... Kudos to them for not going over the top like you would see in some kind of, I don't know, Kelly's Heroes or something like that, where it's just emblazoned with it. It might as well have <laughs> neon embedded in it. I'm Nazi gold. <laughs> so, and then we get that funny last little moment in the scene where Bond reaches for the gold and M stops him, telling him, <laughs> you can get it the next day in Q branch. <laughs> he, just sort of, he just sort of retracts his hand like, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, my bad. My bad. <laughs> So cut to the next day and Bond's at Q Branch. And this is really where we get the quintessential formula-defining Bond and Q meeting. Yes. Um, it's, it's really great. I mean, we get Bond picking up a grenade. That's the very first thing he does, just immediately picking up something he's not supposed to. Um, you've got in the background, you've got guys testing out bulletproof vests. I think I saw a flamethrower somewhere back. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So then... Uh, so then Bond finds out he's no longer getting his Bentley, and he's kind of bent out of shape about that. But he is getting a shiny new Aston Martin DB5, and the one that the uh, franchise can't seem to put away anymore. It's like you, no. can't, you can't even go a movie. Can we just put it to rest? Just No. When we get to Bond 26, can we just, just, just let it lay low for a movie? Hey, at least they integrated it into the Daniel Craig movies in a more naturalistic way than just slapping it in your face. True, true. At least it was... He, it, he won an actual one that ended up going to Q Branch and getting turned into a James Bond car that then yes. got blown up and then got rebuilt into a James Bond car <laughs> again. <laughs> anyway. We all, know, we all know you have love for 80s Aston Martins. Well, at least I do anyway. Now yes. everybody who listens to the podcast does. But indeed, indeed. I'm sorry. The one that, that Timothy Dalton drove is never going to be as iconic as this one's going to be. I love that car, though. Man, <laughs> if I could have one, if I could have one, that'd be the one I'd want. But anyway. Sure. If you digress, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so we get to see all the classic bells and whistles of the DB5. And then, of course, the Homer, the Homer device. <laughs> which he can this have. one is called a Homer. <laughs> and I just wanted to push the button and go, don't. No, 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 Bart. <laughs> so, so uh, we yeah we get the Homer device that he can then track in the Aston on what has to be the earliest incarnation of Google Maps slash Find My Phone app. <laughs> and I'm gonna say right now because I'll probably forget later. But the way they did the map display on that, 
mm-hmm. was super convincing yes. for the technology of the day. When when Felix is doing it inside his car, because they have that technology too, I guess, he's turning <laughs> dials and the map is moving the way he's turning the dials. So kudos to whoever did the special effects overlays for yes. that. Because it looked super convincing. I almost want to go back and see if it was actually a mechanical effect. I think it actually might have been, like because you always saw it focused right in on the screen. You never saw the screen yeah. in a wide shot. Yeah. So they must maybe they had like an overlay that he was actually turning along with it, and it was which literally makes it even it was, more brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you know, because a lot of times, especially in the '90s, you get tech that is supposed to be fancy and sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And it's so obviously shopped, whereas in the 60s, they had to get super, super, super creative, su- super creative and smart about it. And it works way better. <laughs> Absolutely. So I did have to look up because there's that moment right after he explains the whole tr- Homer tracker thing where Bond says, uh, oh, this gives you the opportunity to stop off for a quick one. I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, stop off for a quick one, like take a pee, get laid. What? And I, and I did some digging and apparently in the French dub version, it means to, to get a drink. It's more, yeah. the, the dubbing is more uh, literal and, and basically implies to get a drink, but I didn't realize that that's what that phrase I, meant. I think it's, uh, I read it both ways and I think it's sort of up to the, uh, the viewer to decide whether Bond was going to get a drink or he's going to try and get laid because that's all he really does when he's not, you know, focusing on the mission. So it could right. be one or the other or both. <laughs> or both. <laughs> uh, so from here, we get the rest of the tour of the Aston. Uh, no labels on the buttons at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like imagine being out and being in hot pursuit or being hotly pursued or pursued <laughs> and you hit the wrong thing mm-hmm. that would suck anyway well, q does tell him to pay attention so, yeah, so it's really you... it's really on 007 to focus on what everything does <laughs> and memorize that's right uh and then of course we get the lovely and please return everything intact <laughs> <laughs> and then we get the final exceptional gem which is the whole ejector seat explanation now if you take the top off you'll find a little red button Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. I just love how he says, don't ever press this button. Bond says why, and then he proceeds to tell him exactly what it does. It's like, well, if you didn't want him to touch the button, don't tell him what it does. Just make him think the worst. <laughs> just be like, just don't touch it. Well, why not? Don't touch it. <laughs> all, all I kept thinking about was that episode of Ren and Stimpy with Space Madness yes. with the red button. Yes, I'm very familiar with that, actually. <laughs> So we cut to the uh, golf resort and uh, Goldfinger walks into the uh, into the shop to meet with his golf opponent, Blacking, who explains that there was a golfer who shares the same handicap as him that perhaps he'd want to play with. And then, of course, the camera reveals that that person is Bond and Bond throws out there a shilling a hole. So they play for a shilling a hole. And Bond leaves the shop and is stopped dead in his tracks by the our first sight of Odd Job, or well, our first clear shot of Odd Job. Right. 
uh, looking like a very silly caddy <laughs> or a very mean caddy. <laughs> and uh, Goldfinger introduces him and then they hit the course. And as they're playing on the putting green, Goldfinger asks Bond why he's really there because clearly he's not there to play golf. And that's when you get that gold brick bounce on Yeah, it's a thump. <laughs> so, and then they start talking about its origin and Bond tells Goldfinger that he has access to more. And that's when Goldfinger also asks to increase the stakes so that they're playing for the bar of gold. And I really like, this is another really good actual acting moment from Connery. You can tell the stress of Bond uh-huh. after Goldfinger suggests that they play for the bar of gold. He really shows the stress on his face. Like, he's like, yeah, uh, yeah sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, he actually, he, I think he agrees to it by going, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like he's not, he can't even yeah. form words because he realizes what he's going to do. Yeah. Because, um, mm-hmm. I mean, what's, What's 5,000 pounds adjusted for inflation? It's got to be an awful lot. <laughs> I would say it's probably at least three times the amount. So it's probably at least 15,000 pounds. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, so they agree to it based on strict rules of golf. Strict and, rules of golf, yes. yes. And uh, that's when we get this fun little progression where Goldfinger proceeds to cheat after winding up in the rough and Bond switches the ball's on the second to last hole. So he's able to call him out at the end of the game for it, in which he keeps the gold and collects his check. Um, I will say one more little thing about the, about the actual golf game. Bond's caddy is, is likable, very likable. Yes. <laughs> he's just like, Oh, you're going to get him, Mr. Bond. <laughs> <laughs> it's your honor, sir. <laughs> <laughs> that, that whole golf scene uh, you know, out of all the little meet and greets that you get between Bond and, and his super villains as it goes along or his villains right. as it goes along, that one's got to be the best one. Yeah. Because it shows Bond being very restrained. He's engaging him. He already knows he likes to cheat. He knows he's got the upper hand. Right. He just needs it to go out the way he did. And I love the scene where the ball falls off the tee. Yes. And, he's, and they're both like, eee? yeah, they're both like, is he going to find out that we switched yeah. the ball? And <laughs> and it also, I like too in that very same moment, the fact that Goldfinger goes first, even though it's not his turn to go first. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of reflects what kind of person he is that he doesn't care and that he just, he's just going to do what he wants to do. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that. So again, it's a good screenplay and it's, it's, it's well thought out by how the actors played their characters. Yeah. You know, sure. so kudos to that. Cause some of them going forward, ain't that good. <laughs> <laughs> so as bond is waiting to be paid, uh, we see him sneak as Homer into the trunk of Goldfinger's Rolls Royce while, oh. while uh, odd jobs on the other end of the car. And then Goldfinger, of course, at this point is super irritated with Bond and is basically telling him to stay out of his affairs and even acknowledges uh, Bond's first run-in with him at the hotel. Although Bond sort of acts like he kind of acts like he doesn't know what he's talking about or whatever. Um, and then, of course, as a sign of strength, Goldfinger has odd job demonstrate his hat throwing abilities. And we, we see him the classic shot of his hat decapitating the statue. And Bond's thinking the whole time, oh, wow. I can get my hat on Money Penny's coat rack every single time I walk in. It's nothing special. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Bond then says, 
remarkable. What does the club secretary have to say? And then Goldfinger's like, bitch, I own this. <laughs> this, 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 this club is mine, man. So, and then that's when we get one final little bit of henchman action where Bond throws the ball back to Odd Job and he does the crushing of it in his fist like henchmen's do. They do. <laughs> uh, from there, Bond verifies that the uh, tracker is working and he follows Goldfinger to the airport. Um, and we learn that Goldfinger and conveniently his car are both flying to Geneva, uh, which at the time, it was funny, you know, it's been so long since I've seen this movie that I literally forgot some of the details of it. And, <laughs> and when I saw them loading his car up, I'm like, well, that's awfully convenient. <laughs> like, why are they flying his car? Like, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to fly a car to Switzerland. <laughs> it took a little while for me to remember what was going on in this movie and why he was doing that. And then take that to the natural extension. Bond was flying to Switzerland, too, and his car made it over there as yeah. well. Yes, very much lifestyles of the rich and famous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess this was pre-channel, but I would assume there was a way to get cars from England yes. <laughs> to to the continent uh, prior to having a tunnel under the water. So yes. <laughs> that would have been a little more, I don't know, affordable. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> so, so then we cut to uh, Goldfinger's Rolls Royce driving through the mountains of Switzerland. And Bond is following behind. And then coming up behind him, we get our first glimpse of Tilly Masterson. Yes, and, and the only Ford Mustang in all of Switzerland in, in 1964, I'm guessing. Yeah, in all of Switzerland. <laughs> so, so Tilly flies by him and Bond. What? Okay, I'll, I'll just... I'm just going to describe what's going on and then I'll get to my point. <laughs> so Tilly flies by and Bond considers pursuing... But then in a rather uncharacteristic show of discipline, he sort of stays true to the course and I should just stay on course, 007. I forget exactly what he says right there. I think he says, he said, I think he says, you know, discipline 007. Yes, that's what it is. Discipline 007. But what is it with, first of all, Bond movies always portray women as these maniac drivers <laughs> like <laughs> they're all every woman in every bond movie drives like a maniac <laughs> and then the other thing that's really hilarious is how excited bond always gets by this this is like nothing gets bond more revved up than seeing a woman drive a car like a maniac <laughs> like like he immediately wants to pursue any woman driving a fast car who's driving that fast car very fast <laughs> Because it happens in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. It happens in GoldenEye. It happens in this. Well, he, he mm. doesn't do it initially, but it's like he just has this thing. <laughs> it's like his fetish or something. <laughs> he, just, he just wants to stop off at a quick one. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Goldfinger stops at a small market uh, that's kind of on the hillside to get something to eat, presumably. And Bond is watching from the switchback above it. And then one switchback above that is Tilly, who's trying to shoot Goldfinger, but nearly hits Bond. Um, and this is when Bond finally decides to pursue Tilly. I find it very interesting that Goldfinger and Oddjob barely even like flinch at the gunshot. At a gunshot. Yeah, right? Like they didn't hardly do anything. They just like, uh, okay. Well, that, <laughs> and they're back that, in the car and going. <laughs> that kind of made me think that they knew. So, okay. So when I watched it the first time, mm -hmm. I mistakenly thought Jill Masterson was working for Goldfinger as well. 
and was mm. trying to kill 007 because the look on Ajav's face was like, ah, they must have done yes. it. Except he, he would have said, mer, 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 mer. Yeah. So and I didn't get that she wasn't working for, she explains it, but in my head, it was still stuck that yeah, way like until we get to the scene further on. Yeah, it does look like that. Like if the way that Ajab looks at the scenario, it's mm-hmm. almost like he's like, yeah, she's taking care of this for me. Right. So I think there was some awareness that they were being followed, but I don't know if that awareness extended into them thinking, oh, he's a bad shot and he missed us. It's very right. ambiguous in what's happening in that particular scene. Yes. And um, I, there's probably no resolution, but, yeah. you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, after that whole situation, I believe Tilly passes by him again. And then that's when he decides to pursue her. Well, he starts screwing with her first. He won't let her go by. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He starts just sort of weaving back and forth, which in this day and age, the level of road rage that would happen if somebody did that, this would never fly back. Like, well, <laughs> you know, I'm like I, keep watching thinking, this. I keep thinking, cause you know, a lot of that stuff was filmed in a soundstage. You could tell it was green sure. screen behind it, but Bond spends so much time looking at his rearview mirror on a twisty mountain road <laughs> that the acid should have gone over the side like six times. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. So, so anyway, after he finally lets her pass and he's, then he gets beside her and he breaks out those axle blades from the, from the DB five, which I get why. So, so anyway, the axle blades cut her tires and the bottom of her car up and she, naturally crashes into the most impossibly inconsequential thing. Like she just goes off the road and like, she's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Her head's resting on the steering wheel, but there's no blood coming out of her head. Yeah. The most inconsequential crash ever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, then uh, Bond pulls over and acts like he doesn't know anything. He's like, are you all right? Oh, I'm so glad you're okay. And <laughs> even though I on purpose just trashed your car. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, Bond then drives her to a nearby uh, repair shop. And as they're driving there, he sort of takes note of the initials on her gun case, which she explains away as her ice quote unquote ice skates. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh and then after sort of a terse back and forth between those two, he he drops her off and then he uh, tracks back to Goldfinger, who is at this uh, large plant, and we see the big sign that says Auric Enterprises across it. And that's where we sort of uh jump into kind of the the second act of this gigantic convoluted movie. <laughs> And it's a very long act too, but yes. you know, it feels like all of the all of the plot of the movie is crammed into the second act of it. So indeed. Take take a deep breath. We're going in. We're going in. All right. So Bond uh, gets out uh, of the, uh, the Aston with a pair of binoculars around his neck and goes to scope out the Auric facility. Yes. Um, see what's going on. And then uh we cut to night. I don't know why he couldn't have just gone in at night. That whole little daytime scene was a well, little incongruous. Well, here's the weird thing about it. Initially, when I watched it, I thought, is he just sitting there all day, waiting all day until it turns to night? And then I realized when they cut to night, he's wearing different clothing. He's, he's, wearing, mm-hmm. he's suddenly wearing sneaky Bond clothes. 
Yeah. So, so clearly he didn't stay there. He clearly went back, <laughs> changed clothes. Yeah. And then came unless, back. He, unless he had stuff in the boot. I don't know. But. I mean, who knows? I, I, but it was just sort of, that was a weird cut. <laughs> yeah. He could have just, they could have just shown him driving by the building and then cut to Bond Not, sneaking in. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, there, I wonder if there was more to that that ended up on the editing room floor. I could I definitely know. see that. I could definitely see something um, like that. But anyway, uh, we get to nighttime. Bond sneaks down onto the grounds of the plant, um, being all sneaky Bond awesome. Oh, God. You know, sneaky Bond is my favorite. I mean, oh yeah, it's been echoed throughout a million podcasts, but it's the truth. And I have to re-echo it here. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you know, the, this whole scene is lit very well. Yes. It's, there's very saturated darks mm-hmm. and very saturated lights. So you're not getting a lot of that. We filmed it in the day, but we've darkened the filter yeah. to make it look like night. It's not it's like very Doc- moody and atmospheric. Very much so. It's not like Dr. No, where they did all that day for night stuff. It's this is true night that they're shooting in now. Yeah. And, and, and maybe it, the benefit of time has sort of, you know, allowed them to do that on this one yeah if it's my guess the cinematographer looked at the where they were doing is like i have to shoot it this way there's just too many right angles in this area for me to not get blocks of darkness and light you know i i would have i'm not even a cinematographer hell i don't even play one on tv (laughs) but anyway uh bond rounds a few corners and we hear uh several groups of men speaking in korean i'm assuming it's korean i don't know that for a fact (laughs) <laughs> but we'll, we'll run with it. Um, he finally finds a place to sit and hide for a moment uh, up a fire escape ladder and then onto a ledge where he looks down into the building through a window. Um, this is where he sees Goldfinger walking around as men are dismantling the Rolls Royce. I have to say, knowing what's in the Rolls Royce, because here's the, here's the, here's the kicker, folks. The Rolls Royce is made of gold. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he smuggles the gold everywhere. But then it makes mm. you wonder how that car was able to drive so peppily when it left the golf course, because a, that thing had to be heavy. A, A, how were they able to drive it so peppily? And B, how much did that sucker weigh when they loaded it on an airplane? That's why they had to put it on a car. You, you'll notice that it's a definite cargo plane because it's got that bump at the top. Oh, okay. It yeah, looks yeah. like a 747. Right. So that's a passenger compartment where the bottom section of the plane is all dedicated to cargo. And they would need something that big to, to load a car Absolutely. essentially made of gold. <laughs> yeah, because that car probably weighed as much. Well, I don't know. It probably weighed as much as a fully loaded pickup truck of the day would have as well, you know, so that probably yeah. was an excess of eight or 9,000 pounds yeah. being made out of gold. But uh, anyway, so you see a bunch of uh, gentlemen dressed in the same sort of blue <laughs> costume, yeah. dismantling the, the Rolls Royce, um, which you see parts of her in gold. Uh, Goldfinger is speaking to someone named Mr. Ling, explaining how his smuggle operation actually works to get gold out of the country. Um Oh yeah, and this pretty- is a, this this is a fun little area because as he's explaining all this, they clearly are just trying to sort of stitch up the 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 script here because the ADR does not match with what he's actually saying right there. <laughs> just just put ADR over it and they'll buy it. It's fine. <laughs> well, that could have been one of those straight up he was speaking German scenes, and it just did you know. Oh, it could have been that. Yeah, because uh, you know the the trivia said that there were some scenes where he did speak English. Uh huh. And it matched up better, but the the director had him speak German slowly, 
So it was easier to do matches. Oh, I see. Okay. But it couldn't all have matched perfectly because German and English, they're yeah. not the same thing in case you didn't know that. <laughs> um, lot more anyway, con- lot more consonants. <laughs> after, after, Bo- or after Goldfinger finishes explaining how he does his job, uh, uh, he and Ling leave the building. And that's when Bond, here's Goldfinger briefly mentioned how Operation Grand Slam for the first time. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you right now, it's not breakfast at Denny's, folks. Uh, <laughs> Bond finds his way off of the building after hearing this and then darts back onto the hillside. So we get out to there, and uh, once Bond is in the woods and out of view, he stops for a moment. And this is where he encounters Tilly again, who, dressed up like a ninja with a hood and everything, <laughs> is trying to take a shot, but doesn't see a tripwire that's there. Now, I'm going to argue at this point that if Bond hadn't interfered, she probably wouldn't have hit the tripwire. I agree with that point. Very much so. I think I feel like Bond actually made things worse (laughs) by stopping. Like, granted, Bond wanted Goldfinger alive. But in the process, he was the one that sort of startled her and, in effect, made her hit the tripwire. Yeah, given the fact that... uh she, he knows she can't hit anything with that rifle um, because if she couldn't hit that shot from the blank bit where she was at, she right. was going to make the shot from all the way back there with that teeny tiny little 22 she was shooting. Exactly. Um, so she misses the shot. Uh, they, they grapple for a bit in clear bond fashion, which is I'm wrestling with a girl. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, and in the process, she very uncomfortably explains why she wants to kill Goldfinger. It's not the best performance I've ever seen in an actress before. No, no, unfortunately not. It's a, it's a little forced, but you know. Yeah, but Bond's like, "Nah, I need Goldfinger alive." It's you know, this is where you get the clarification of them. Why did you shoot at me? Yes. I wasn't shooting at you. I was shooting at him. Oh, well, you're a lousy shot. <laughs> anyway, the scuffle and the alarm get all the blood going of the people down in uh, Goldfinger's. Uh, Schmelting plant. Schmelting. Um, <laughs> and they start getting fired upon. Uh, Bond leads Philly back to the DB5. And, oh, my uh, God. Oh, my God. And here we go. Here we go again. We get another bad guy waiting, just standing there. All right, I'm ready. Take me out, Bond. <laughs> I'm yep, here. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Um, so driving along, uh, he turns into this it turns into a car chase, and there's two old school Mercedes filled with a bunch of bad guys in blue suits chasing <laughs> after Bond. Uh, we get to the full gamut of the gadgets of the DB5, and this is this is something that I used to call Night Rider syndrome, <laughs> but it's clearly Bond syndrome. It is. He Bond starts flipping syndrome. switches on things, and this lady's like, "Oh, this happens all the time in cars." <laughs> well, she gets pretty delighted after the smoke screen. She right, was, but there's, <laughs> but yeah, she like, wasn't. She wasn't surprised. You're right. She wasn't right. surprised at all. When people would get into kit, nobody's like, "You got television screens in here? <laughs> Your car talks?" <laughs> Everyone's all like, "Yeah, let's go do what we need to do." Michael Knight. It's the same thing. She's like, "There's smoke coming out of your car, and now oil. Is your car broken?" Right. There's no surprise. There's no like, "What the hell is going on?" <laughs> I can't believe you have this amazing car. <laughs> right. So. And it's great. You get to see all every every Bond spy car trope in the world is exhibited in this scene. In one car chase. In, in one car chase, you get every every gadget that he's got. You start with the smoke screen. One of the cars veers off, and honestly, a pretty good smoke screen. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, it's it's exceptional for 1960s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, one car goes off, and then the next one's coming. He uses the oil slick. I have to tell you, though, on the oil slick, it wasn't very well timed. Bond should have been laying that down before he got to the turn so that when they made the yes. turn, they lost control. It wasn't very convincing, his, his right. skid off. And just, what is it with, you know, there's always a cliff around. There's always... And the cars always blow up and catch on fire. Yeah, it's there is literally every single Bond car chase in the entire series... <laughs> Whenever there's a car chase, they're always near a cliff. There is always yep. a cliff literally just around the next corner. <laughs> you know, that's not just James Bond. That's 60s action movies in general. Yeah, that's everything. Cars go over cliff. Cars blow up. People in cars die. You know, it is funny to me that that Mercedes Benzes are used in such a utilitarian fashion yes. in this movie. Because... <laughs> They weren't anything like they are now in the 60s. It just cracks me up. But uh, anyway, we get the oil slick, goes over the cliff, catches on fire, bing, bang, boom. <laughs> so we get another car, presumably the one that hit the tree, although it didn't look damaged when it came out. But right. um, Goldfinger probably had a lot of Mercedes Benzes with a lot of guys in blue suits. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, it starts chasing after Bond. Uh, Bond accidentally navigates into a dead end cliff where a shootout proceeds between the two of them. And here's something that I have to ask you. Q clearly states that the glass in the car is bulletproof. Right. Why do you have to put the bulletproof shield up? I thought that was the dumbest thing in the car, unless your bulletproof, your bulletproof glass got shot out. I mean, unless it's presuming that the shield is for heavier fire. Like a well, bigger, like a bigger gun or a small rocket, that, <laughs> like an that, RPG yeah, that, or something. <laughs> that front windshield got peppered with that grease gun when he was going later on, and right. it was still intact. But uh, sure. I digress. <laughs> you said it was there; they had to show it needed to be there. I just want to point out: it sort of seems like the rest of the car is bulletproof because he uses a door. Which, by the way, the bulletproof windows rolled down on the door, so maybe that's why the door was bulletproof. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too hard about this, but anyway. Um, so he deploys a bulletproof shield. He tells Jill, on my signal, go. And then he gives her the signal to go while they're shooting at him. And then Ajab shows up and throws his hat at Tilly. She's running now. We just saw him demonstrate 20 minutes or 30 minutes earlier that he could decapitate a stone head with that hat. With but lethal hits, accuracy. But when he hits Jill... She it, just gets lightly tapped and falls down and her head's still on her body? Well, it does kill her. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't her. decapitate her. <laughs> it kills her in an MPAA appropriate manner for 1964. <laughs> yes, that is very true. <laughs> Not even a drop of blood. Nope. Nothing. Nothing. It's a very G.I. I mean, Joe sort of. <laughs> and I'm just like, if you're going to demonstrate that this thing can decapitate stone heads, Make it hit her in the chest. Make it hit her in the back. Yeah. Anywhere but her neck where it should have shorn her head clear off. And folks, <laughs> I don't want to sound like a bloodthirsty monster here because I'm not. I'm just a continuity guy. And if you're going to demonstrate something, make it work. I'm just saying. Anyway, Tilly, Tilly's dead, but she's not decapitated. She's not decapitated. Um, now, this is sort of a weird moment because Bond, who runs for Tilly and then stops to affirm that she's dead, probably confused why her head's still attached to her shoulder, <laughs> I'm guessing. Uh, 
Um, you know, it, you can almost think that uh, maybe he's wondering if the death was supposed to be so shocking of all the gunfire and stops and the, they can marvel at the neat lethal handiwork of odd job. But yeah, cause it, it's just like all gunfire ends and you know, bond yeah. just stops firing bond stops, even like paying attention to all these bad guys who have been yeah. shooting at him. And he just stops and, and looks over Tilly. And I don't know if it's just, if this is all trying to imply that what odd job did was so shocking that even the bad guy, just the random bad guys in blue suits were all so shocked and Bond so shocked and everyone's so shocked that they all stopped shooting just to observe this lethal. Right. Well, that's actually a really good point, Ben, because I I didn't even think about that. I mean, killing women, women die in Bond movies. Some of them get painted in gold, but (laughs) you don't, you don't really see them getting murdered like that. Yes. Like mowed down, mowed down. And granted it was not, super violent but i mean her death was still yeah i threw my saw blade hat and you died ha 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 yeah but you're right i thought the same thing because i'm like ajab starts walking there before bond leaves i'm like why did you shoot him when he wasn't paying attention to you and his weapon was gone right exactly and it's like everybody just it just all playtime just sort of stops to observe Tilly, you know, and then Bond just sort of waits for the bad guys to come up behind him and take him away because it, it took the wind out of his sails. James Bond with a conscious. I don't want that. Yeah, I can only <laughs> that's the only way I can rationalize why everybody stopped shooting. It must be. It may, it, maybe it's just a cultural thing that you and I are not really exposed to. Right. Because I mean, we, because again, I'm telling we, you right now in a Daniel Craig movie, her head would have been rolling on the ground <laughs> or you would or you would have got the distinct impression that it happened. Yes, it would. Yeah, it would have been that. It, you wouldn't have seen it, but it would have been like you would have drawn a direct correlation. Yes, absolutely. To what you saw earlier. Yes. So I, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> so then they walk Bond back up to his car. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're gonna let you get in the magical DB5 with every bell and whistle in the book, and we're gonna let Didn't you, it's... and we're gonna let you drive it. <laughs> right. This is this is a trope in movies that I, I understand the, the base logic. I have a gun on you, so you're going to do what I tell you. But how are you going to shoot the guy who's driving your car? Probably not, because he's because in charge of your die. life. Yeah, exactly. he's in charge of your life. I've always hated this trope in any movie, and I hate it more here because they know what the car can do. Yeah. Why don't they <laughs> stick him in the back of one of the Mercedes Benzes with four goons and, let and somebody one of the else goons drive drives the car? The, they, they asked him. See, and that's how I would have done it. The guy would have accidentally done something. I know the ejection doesn't work on Bond's side, but right. maybe you had two guys in his car, and one of them sends the other guy flying, which stops the DB5, <laughs> and then Bond's like, and he punches the guy, gets in his car. I don't know. I'm adding more, <laughs> more shooting time to the movie. But at the end of the day, when, you, when a guy's driving a car that smoke screens come out of, and that oil slicks come out of and are bulletproof, maybe don't let him get back into that car because maybe there's something else there, yes. which there is. <laughs> so Bond gets into the car with one of the blue suit henchmen yeah. and uh, they carry him back to the main facility where they go through this gate and there's an old lady there. And, <laughs> that curtsies. And, and I'm just like, this has got to be a MacGuffin. Something, or something, something's going to happen with this lady. Right. This is it's too not, random, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, then as soon as Bond gets through the security gate, he steps on the gas. 
and goes the other direction. And before the guy holding him a gunpoint can think, Bond pushes up the, the cap, cap of the shifter, hits the button he's not supposed to hit, and bye-bye, <laughs> Mr. Bad Guy with the gun. So he goes flying through the roof. The, the car chase ensues now that he doesn't have somebody holding an obviously useful gun, a useless gun to his yeah. head, including going back to the gate where the old lady pulls out a uh, machine gun <laughs> and starts shooting. And I have to tell you this right now. In Captain America First Avenger, there's a scene where he goes in when he goes in to come into Captain America and the old lady is minding the, the bookshop. And then when the oh, Nazi geez. guy comes out, so she they pulls do out a, a Thompson and starts rat a tat tatting and he they shoots do her. an homage to it or and I well it's an homage, but it's one of those few connections that I make in a movie where I'm like, oh shit, that's just like a change in Goldfinger. I remember <laughs> that scene so much that I actually drew the parallel in it. But so she starts letting loose with the machine gun. Bond twists and turns through the street of the entire facility, which seems an awful lot larger than it did when he did the drive-by earlier. Yeah, it suddenly feels like an entire city. <laughs> right. He's going through. Uh, he thinks he sees the cars coming ahead, which I got to tell you, I didn't really catch that this was a mirror until... I, I saw that there was a mirror, but I thought it was just odd job admiring his own handiwork. I did put two and two together that he was faking him out until the second yeah, viewing. Right. But, you know, Bond ends up crashing the car into the wall, which is a pretty damn effective wall crash, if you ask me. Yeah. And he no, breaks it's, it's, the masonry, and that car's It's pretty total. convincing. But then what's not convincing is Sean Connery falling out. He has a problem <laughs> being knocked unconscious, because I just don't buy it every time it happens. Well, and again, and again, they sped it up when he fell right. out. He did, but at least he didn't wipe his nose when he <laughs> fell out of the car. <laughs> anyway, Bond falls out. We fade to black. Look up, look out, they've come to knock you out. It's Pussy Galore's Flying Circus. Frills, spills, they'll give you all the chills. They loop, they sweep, they'll gash you right off your feet. Witness the high-flying escapades of Pussy's lovely brigade at the Bluegrass Airfield this Saturday the 20th. It's a solid gold event. That's Pussy Galore's Flying Circus, Saturday the 20th at Bluegrass Airfield, just off Bullion Boulevard, one half mile east of I-25. If you love pussy, then come on down and see Pussy Galore! And then we're going to get uh, right now to the probably one of the most, not only the most classic scene of this movie, but probably one of the most classic Bond villain scenes Ever. 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 I mean, everything it's... is semi-derivative of this scene as it goes forward, including Austin Powers and you name it. It's in our open. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we've got Bond strapped to a table. There's a gigantic laser above his head. <laughs> um, Goldfinger enters very jovial, I might add. Yes. You know, well, he's, he's so, like, he's so tickled by the car. Well, that's the thing. And the fact that Bond's still trying to pretend he's not a secret agent. Yeah, he's, he's like, my name's James Bond, because he says, yeah, he, Goldfinger's like, good evening, 007. He's like, my name's James Bond. And it's like, <laughs> Goldfinger's like, just shut up. I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people uh, don't normally drive cars like that, so uh, <laughs> you must be a spy, right? <laughs> and, the fact that Bond is just trying to sell that he's not, I mean, uh, he always wanted to go, well, you see, I actually rented the car from Hutch in Switzerland. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't realize it had all of those things, but apparently it did. 
but anyway, Goldfinger basically says the jig's up. I know who you are. And then he starts talking about the laser so that you understand what the laser can do, which is actually kind of funny. I like how he points out that you can put a dot on the moon because it's that powerful. Right. But that in close concentration, it generates enough heat to do this. And then we start the laser beam up, slowly inching towards James Bond's crotch, <laughs> which you got to wonder which one Bond's more worried about losing, his life or his crotch. I don't know. <laughs> but supposedly the uh, the table he's laying on is made out of gold. Or at least the part between his legs. I mean, yeah. the, the top part looks like it's like just like a white... I don't know, for Micah or something. I don't know. <laughs> but like, but then the bottom end sort of looks like gold. I thought it was wood initially, but he, but Goldfinger. That's what it looks like to me. Yeah. But Goldfinger describes it as, says it's gold in scene. So, okay. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> but so we got the laser beam slowly crawling up towards his number one and his number two. <laughs> Goldfinger explains that he understands the aim in Bond's last two interventions in his affairs and then makes his way to leave. A Bond getting quite desperate that his junk's about to be lasered off, starts trying to come up with a reason to keep him around <laughs> um, and gets to uh, the one of the most classic lines ever in, ever. in spy movies, Hell, just movies in general, but spy movies specifically. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Yes. Uh, from here, Bond is looking increasingly stressed out about the laser heading towards crotch. Uh, and besides, <laughs> I'm going to pull out this little nugget that may get me nowhere. I think I need to kind of preface this by saying that he, you know, he tells him like, if, if they get rid of me, 008 will just re replace me yes. on the mission. And he knows everything I know. And Goldfinger's <laughs> like, but you know nothing, so I don't care. <laughs> and are you sure you don't worry about Operation Grand Slam? <laughs> And even then, Goldfinger's like, it's just words you heard. Two words that mean nothing to you. Right. Well, can you take that chance? Well, what's funny, right. is, <laughs> what's funny is in between that, there's this pause, and Goldfinger is talking to uh, Kish, and they're just, it, it almost reminded me of like when you're in a car sales place, when you're going to buy a car, <laughs> and, and your salesman goes to talk to like the guy in the pit in the <laughs> yep, the sales manager yeah like the sales manager and they're talking for like five minutes and you're just waiting around for what they're going to throw back at you that's what yes. it felt like for a second <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so in his desperate attempt uh, bond finally convinces uh, goldfinger that he probably should be kept alive for the time being right um narrowly saving his own skin i mean i got to be honest with you i could see where the the logic of not wanting another agent you don't know about yes Coming in, but if I was Goldfinger, I'd have rolled those dice. I'm pretty sure it just cut Bond in half and left it. Yeah, well, you know, it wouldn't be a Bond movie if if he just did that. <laughs> right. You know, and I, I guess owing to his, the personality that Goldfinger demonstrates is he's a man that likes to, uh, to gamble as long as he thinks the odds are in his side. Mm -hmm. And he probably thought the odds were in his side of keeping him along there. I don't like it when the Bond villain does Bond villainy stuff and there's not a motivation for it. Yes. But this one I could kind of give a pass to because it is kind of in keeping with his character. Right. Um, but anyway, so Bond doesn't get his junk lasered off um, much to yet. his happiness and joy. <laughs> and uh, we get him, uh, he gets shot with a uh, with the fastest acting tranquilizer dart gun ever. 
<laughs> he went down like Leonard Nimoy gave him a Vulcan nerve pinch on that one. Yeah, it was quick. I mean, shoom, out. <laughs> and same, I'm passing out face. Yes. I'm like, <laughs> somebody needed to workshop that with Connery, I think. It's it's definitely his weakest, uh, his weakest face of all. But anyway, uh, Bond wakes up uh, later um, on an airplane. I think you can assume it's an airplane when you see it, but uh, yes. it's very opulent and, and non-airplaney on the inside. Yes. Um, and he wakes up to Honor Blackman. My name is Pussy Galore. I must be dreaming. I must be dreaming. <laughs> um, so we come to find out that uh, Bond and Pussy and uh, what was her name? My Ling. The, Mei Ling, the, I think. Mei Lee. Mei Lee. The incredibly racist, stereotypical oh, serving God. girl Asian. Yeah. Oh, oh the sixties. I mean, there's a lot of cringy stuff in that. For some reason, that makes me super cringy. I don't know why. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, but in, anyway, Bond and the two ladies, I guess three ladies, because there's a co-pilot up there. Mm. Uh, find out he's flying over Newfoundland and they're heading to Baltimore. Um, and Bond is to be Goldfinger's guest at his stud ranch in uh, Kentucky. Yes. Um, <laughs> So with that, Bond is offered a cocktail, shaken, not stud. Yes. And, and not in a martini glass, which seemed very odd. Yeah, and a champagne flute. Yeah, with the little, it, had, it did have a little lemon twist on it, though. So at least there was that. Yeah. Um, we get another great exchange where Bond asks if uh, Pussy is more than just Goldfinger's pilot. Don't you or your wife have a theory on that, uh, yeah. that whole thing? Well, I just, it was one of the funniest things that my wife said. While we were watching this, she's like, I love how he basically asks every single woman in this movie if she's a whore. <laughs> it's just because literally every time that Bond encounters someone that works for Goldfinger, he assumes that, that they're being paid to sleep with him on top of everything else. Right. I don't know if this is like a 60s thing or... <laughs> or if Bond is really just that awful in that respect, I, just assuming I, that that's, that's part of what their job entails, or if just, you know, being a, pro, a female professional in the 60s was that treacherous, which I wouldn't doubt it. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, look, look at the movie. So it, obviously it was, it was tough to be a woman in the spy game in the 60s. Indeed. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Pussy Galore is not having anything of it. She basically says, I, I work for him because I'm a damn good pilot. And fuck you, James Bond. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so she uh, she makes sure he's secure. She heads up to the cockpit. Pussy heads up to the cockpit. And we dissolve into Bond, hearing on the overhead that Baltimore is just 55 minutes out. Bond asks Miley if he can freshen up in the Super opulent bathroom at the back of the airplane with a <laughs> soft leather door and it's very yes. everything. Yes. Um, he asks if any of his stuff made it up with him on the plane. This also cracks me up that somebody yes. went. It means that his stuff was in the back of the DB5 and they had to get us. And then she brings out this, this. It's almost a throwaway line about his attache case. Yes. And she mentions that it was damaged during inspection. And yeah. I'm like. <laughs> Did he have a case with stuff that blew up? <laughs> yeah. Like, was some... there a scene that, that they pulled his luggage out and <laughs> three henchmen get wiped out because they open up, try to break into the attache case? And somebody's like, we don't have time for that. Move it along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Bond takes his uh, suitcase into the bathroom and he's trying to get freshened up. And uh, we would cut quickly back over to uh, Pussy Galore, telling the co-pilot to tell May Lee to keep an eye on him. Right. 
And so we get the scene where Bond is in the bathroom getting ready to do stuff. This is we so see, good. Yeah. We see May Lee looking through the clock, which is the exact same clock in the bathroom. Right. It's with just the same hole weird. in it. The level of cartooniness in this little yes. moment with all these you know, of course, there's like seven peepholes in this, you know, between this wall and this bathroom, because Lord knows how many hostages they've taken and put aboard this airplane. Exactly. <laughs> so Bond covers up that hole with his suit. And then he looks at the medicine. T- there's a medicine cabinet in the airplane, by the way. <laughs> he looks at the medicine cabinet, realizes it's two-way glass with a mirror on the other end, sees that there's a hole in there, and then puts his suitcase up against it so she can't look in there. Also that he can take out his razor, which has the teeny tiny homing device to go in his shoe, mm-hmm. which by the way, there's a place right in his heel of his shoe for that, that Homer to go, which begs the question, why don't you just carry the Homer in your shoe and not in your razor? <laughs> why, why didn't, why did you wait this long? Right. Could you have had it there the whole time? Weren't you wearing those shoes the whole time? I don't know, <laughs> but um, also quickly recalled back to me to get smart with the shoe phone. <laughs> I don't have anything other to say that it just reminded me of that. And that's a funny thing. So, um, so Bond gets all cleaned up, um, comes over and he's met by pussy who says, are we going to do this the easy way or the hard way? And then Bond explains, here we go. Fuzzy aeronautical science. <laughs> but a 45, a 45 would rip right through the fuselage and kill them both from explosion of decompression. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. <laughs> which, uh, which funny enough was proven wrong later on in this very movie. <laughs> right. Well, and that of course is also total BS, but right. uh, again, I digress. I can also tell you that watching this movie when I was a kid, scared the hell out of me from flying in airplanes for years because I thought you could actually get killed sucked. in that manner. Right. You get that if, that if the cabin depressurized, you would get sucked through that window. You won't. You, will, <laughs> you, you might get partially through, but there isn't going to be enough suction to pull you all the way through. And you would effectually repressurize the cabin by having your fat ass plug up that window. <laughs> anyway, more on that later, kids. <laughs> um, so we cut to M's office. Felix Leiter is informing uh, M that Bond's homing signal was picked up in Baltimore and that the plane's final destination is Bluegrass Field, Kentucky. Um, now, I love how uh, M tells him not to charge in on him because he's obviously well on top of the situation. Yeah, and obviously. This is, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is something that M always seems to do. Yeah, over and over again, especially in this movie, it's just always oh, fine. He's <laughs> there's there's well, nothing wrong. He's he's well under. Felix, he's clearly well uh, on top of the situation. <laughs> exactly, and Felix is the same way. Uh, he's probably getting late or getting drunk as he's talking to his buddy later on. Yeah, <laughs> nobody ever thinks Bond's in danger, <laughs> and like he's he constantly only- in danger. There's a reason there's a line in a 007 movie that says double O's don't have a very long shelf life. It's like, right. <laughs> it's ridiculous, but you know, fine. I'll, I'll Felix is all like, I'll leave. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hold back in my Thunderbird with my buddy here and we'll be fine. Um, so anyway, we get some lovely catty talk between Bond and Pussy as they're leaving the hangar. Um, <laughs> You're a way of many pots, Pussy. <laughs> yeah. Um, she starts giving him the whole deal, uh, you know, they, well, they walk past, finally they walk past all the posters of Pussy Galore's Flying Circus yeah. that are going by, giving you a little foreshadowing of what's actually going on. 
Bond suggests that they have a drink, but then Oddjob rolls up in the station wagon and signals Bond to get in the car. And she has, there's a great little exchange here between uh, Bond and Pussy where he's like, you know, he kills little girls like you. And she's like, yep, little boys too, fucker. <laughs> I mean, honestly, half the line she said had fucker at the end of them, even though she didn't say it. And Indeed. I don't care if we, I don't care if we have to put a, curse warning at the beginning of this i'm gonna say it um, <laughs> oh well i put a curse warning on on this podcast a long time ago oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the car drives off it, it's so weird to see so many american cars in a james bond movie that doesn't have roger moore in it right I'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> um so they drive off uh, and that's when the, the five planes that have been Flying past in the sky, uh, land, and you get to see the lovely ladies of the Flying Circus come out to meet Pussy, uh, telling her that the rehearsal for something went great. I don't know what that rehearsal's for. Do you know? Hmm. I don't know. What could it be? I just know it's a mystery. Uh, (laughs) Then we cut back to, uh, can I just say, the little matching uniforms they're all wearing? (laughs) Not very practical. (laughs) No, no. Little blue jumpers with white boots and white gloves and white collars. It actually looked it actually looked very uh Agents of Shield from the sixties. Indeed. With, you very know, much so. Yeah. They're they're all blonde. We couldn't mm-hmm. get like we couldn't get one brunette pilot in there. <laughs> and where's the girl that was flying the jet with pussy galore? She was a brunette. Yeah. But I don't know. It's it's so funny. She's like, okay, girls, we're done. They're all like, yay, they go scampering <laughs> off. <laughs> I'm like, is this an eye candy moment? Yes, I think this is an eye candy oh, moment. Oh, it definitely is. Because you hear that corny saxophone when when the first blonde gets out of the plane. You hear yeah. that. <laughs> oh, gosh. 60s James Bond. We love you so much. Anyway, uh, we cut to the station wagon rolling into the stud farm. Bond has walked over to Goldfinger, who is with a horse and a horse trainer. Bond basically insults Goldfinger, saying that the horse is better bred than Goldfinger is. And uh, Goldfinger's like, whatever. Um, We're going to send you off to your quarters, uh, which actually is a cell underneath the main house of his dud farm. Yes. Because, you know, we all keep jail cells cells for our prisoners. (laughs) Of course. Where else are you going to keep the jockeys? Um, So... Uh, we get a brief moment with Felix and his partner who are basically staking the place out. And uh, the partner suggests that uh, maybe they should drop in on Bond. And Felix like, nah, he's got it covered. Because, <laughs> you know, he's James Bond, right? Yeah, they just uh, give him way too much credit. <laughs> absolutely. So while Bond is in his cell, we get another rather iconic moment where Goldfinger arrives at a meeting with all of these mob bosses. And wow. This, yeah. Just, just a wow. Just, I mean, 60s Batman-esque to the hilt. It's like if the 60s Batman had a really, really big budget. <laughs> Absolutely. And Ken Adam. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> the mobsters in this thing are not only so stereotypical, but they're also clearly representing actual mobsters from the 60s. Right. <laughs> because Sam Giancana is in there. 
There's a couple of other guys that, uh, you know, look like some of the people that I remember from watching documentaries, things like that. Right. Um, they're, so basically, they're supposed to represent all the mafia from all around the country. They're all a little unhappy that they're meeting with their brethren from different sections. Yeah, this is it's funny that none of them ever get smart to go, OK, anybody who's going to bring all of us together in the same room, we need to get the hell out of here. Like, no. The, yes. <laughs> that, that Nobody's never... thinking. <laughs> Yeah, you have to think that mob people don't do that. No, they don't. (laughs) They would send a representative. (laughs) Exactly. Or if they were going to have something of that magnitude, it would not be with some Swiss dude in the (laughs) middle of Kentucky, right? They they would have had a secure location. Not right. unlike where we uh, we record this podcast. Exactly. And uh, But anyway, you got to move it along. We got to move it along. Okay. Yeah. So the, the set on this was actually pretty amazing. And I can't argue with you. Aside from the set pieces that they obviously needed to have there, mm-hmm. it, it, looks, it looks like a Bond layer without being a Bond layer. It looks like it could actually exist in the real world. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, and it doesn't feel overly Bond secret layer-y at all until like the shades come down. Mm-hmm. or like the pool table flips out. Like it doesn't, until it starts transforming, it looks like just a really cool. Like meeting hall. Like a really cool meeting hall clubhouse type thing. Right. And um, Ken Adams, or Ken Adam, I should say, really he earned his rep on this movie for sure. Yeah, no, no doubt. So each of the mob guys starts claiming the Goldfinger that they made the deliveries they were requested to make, and they're owed a million dollars in gold. In gold. Gold. Uh, Goldfinger <laughs> says, but what if you could have 10 million tomorrow? And they're all like, what are you talking about? Ah, blah, 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 blah. Hey. Goldfinger then pushes the button underneath the pool table and it flips over. And I got, speaking of ADR work, I love all the voices that they have the mass of the, the gobobsters doing when things are happening. Hey, what's happening in a pool table? <laughs> yeah, so, hey, what are you doing, Mr. Goldfinger? See, <laughs> <laughs> flipping the gold piece right the pool table over. See, yeah. Uh, so that he pulls over, the pool table flips over, turns into reveal a control panel where he then activates the shades, which close, and then they all lose their crap about the shades closing. It's dark in here. What are you doing? Oh, my God. The funny thing is that they don't actually do anything except make a lot of noise. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody runs for cover. Nobody gets their gun out. (laughs) And I don't think I've ever seen something like this in a Bond reveal ever. Most people are just like, all right, we'll hear what the guy has to say, right? But some reason they thought these the mobsters were going to get all uppity when he starts doing anything. But uh, so the shades drop, the mob guys are freaking out, and it's the lights come back on, and then Goldfinger shows a magically displayed gigantic picture of Fort Knox. Which, which, okay, this is really funny. This giant photo that that comes up of, of Fort Knox. It's just a photo. Like he spent. So much money blowing up this photo yes. of Fort Knox, this aerial photo of Fort Knox that's taller than he is. It's probably twice the, the height of he, of him. <laughs> but there's no tactical importance. <laughs> there's, no, there's no usefulness other than scale. <laughs> it's, it's purely representational. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's funny because he, he pulls out a pull cue to use as his pointer, which right. I thought was kind of inspired. But basically, he's telling them all that he could get his money from his bank on a Sunday. And the mob's like, there's no banks that are open on Sunday. <laughs> he's like, my bank is open on Sunday. And then he points to it and this is my bank. 
right? Right. And, you know, implying that he's going to uh, steal all of the gold from the United States. And of course, a mob boss is like, you're an idiot. There's no way. It's the most highly guarded thing in the world. Right. Uh, with, to which he, Goldfinger slaps another button. And this opens up a gigantic hole in the floor in <laughs> which a gigantic map comes out. It's just, it's just another pointless map. Yeah, in 3D scale. Like, again, there is nothing tactical about this map. Nothing gives any detail about no. his plan. No, <laughs> other just... than he can point at things with a little more accuracy than on the photo. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, a little a little uh, fun fact here, that actual model is in the museum at Fort Knox. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. After the movie know. was over, they let them do exterior filming outside of Fort Knox for the, the movie, apparently. Although wow. all the actual barracks and things were done at an air station that was out there. Um, but yeah. Um, so the map comes up. Goldfinger still got his little pupil cue pointer. I'll say that <laughs> three times fast. Um, he just starts outlining what his plan is going to be and by saying, you know, man has climbed Everest and gone to the bottom of the ocean. And then we see Bond, who, uh, trying to get out of his cell oh, this, this is great i love this is so cheeky this scene is so cheeky bond just basically walks up and he's acknowledges the guard the guard's staring at him stone faced. he's all hello and then he does like i'm walking down the stairs <laughs> disappearing from sight on the bars you know which <laughs> the guard's like what the hell is going on he goes into the cell bond's not anywhere to be seen and then of course bond comes out and He's up above. He had somehow yeah, magically yeah. climbed up above. Yeah, but he did it by going past the door to climb up to do it because he would have seen him climbing up. But the guy comes in, he takes the guy out, gets the guy's gun, and heads down the hall into a base control room directly under the model. Convenient that. Yes. Uh, where he can hear the entire meeting taking place <laughs> and see through the windows of the model. Also convenient. Uh, yes. To Fort Knox. The mob guys are starting to get antsy, saying Fort Knox is impenetrable and blah, 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 blah. Goldfinger explains that he has a plan where he's going to have Pussy Galore's flying circus fly over Fort Knox and spray him with a nerve gas that knocks everyone out for 24 hours. From here, the this plan, which is described as a split-second schedule, will be orchestrated in breaking through the barriers, loading up the gold. Uh, all of this is being described. Bond is uh, writing down the basics of what's going to happen. Yeah, just you know, you know, just conveniently, there happens to be a pencil, and and he tears off a piece of paper from just some random, yep. some random schematics that are nearby. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that because he's James Bond, he knew that pencil and paper were going to be there, right? Because Bond knows everything. Um, so <laughs> he anyway, has the he has the script. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, one of the guys is like. Nope, taking my money and I'm out. And that guy's name is <sighs> Mr. Solo. <laughs> Mr. Solo. The, hmm. the one guy. The one oh. guy. Solo. The one, one guy. guy. Mr. Solo. <laughs> Not Napoleon Solo. Yeah, at least his first name wasn't Napoleon. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Goldfinger's like, fine. And then he walks him out. Uh, we cut back to Bond as he wraps a note around his. Homer Beacon and stuffs it in his pocket. Bond uh, looks back into the meeting room again. And while he's standing there, Pussy Galore comes over and yanks his ankles out from underneath him, which is such a badass move. I, I got to tell you. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's so emasculating. Yeah. Bond's like, oh, hello. Well, I know. You know. He's, he's charmed by it. He's like, Pussy. Right. 
Pussy. I didn't know, I didn't know you knew judo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could do a couple of short falls together, fast falls together. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, Pussy Galore being herself is like, yeah, I don't care, asshole. Um, give me the gun. He hands, give me the she gun. Hands, and she takes the gun. He steps out. And I think it's funny because she takes the gun and hands it over to Blue Suit Guy. Yeah, she, she wants nothing even... to do with the gun. Yeah. She doesn't need to do it. She doesn't have to. She knows she's in complete control of what's going on. So she escorts him out. In the meantime, um, Goldfinger's guy turns on the gas in a room full of mobsters. Now, I don't understand this. Uh-oh. I don't understand the reasoning behind this at all. That's the one part of this whole thing. I mean... Is it because he wants that money? He doesn't want to give him the money? I, I That's all I can assume. I can... Uh, my thought is, is he no longer needs their services. Right. And so he got what he wanted out of them. So now he's killing... What I don't understand is, is this his, like large way of cleaning up the tracks behind him but yeah but it's the mob yeah somebody's gonna come after him after doing that that that, that's the thing i mean like you know these guys are all arguing with each other over territory but i'm pretty sure the one thing that would bring all the mobs in america together is some asshole that kills all (laughs) of the leaders of the mobs in america right (laughs) and it's not like they don't have people in europe that they can turn to to do things so i'm like you know (laughs) <laughs> your 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 manservant is kind of a badass with his bowler hat, but I'm pretty sure that there's some Sicilian guys out there with sniper <laughs> rifles that he can't stop. <laughs> it is puzzling. I get why maybe he killed Solo, right? Yeah. Because he wasn't going along. But all the rest of them had gone along with it. Yeah. And so the only motivation I can see is he killed him because he knew he that wanted to they, hold on to his gold. I don't know. He wanted know. to hold on to his gold. Maybe he knew he wasn't going to get that same gold that he was. Well, spoiler alert. But I, the whole motivation behind it makes no sense to me. Even if he said, why don't we test it on the mobsters to see if the gas actually works? Right. Something. Right. But nothing. Yeah. So he kills all these mobsters. And then, well, he doesn't. His henchman does <laughs> while he's escorting Mr. Solo out to take a drive with the uh, odd, odd job. job. <laughs> and while uh, he's getting into the car, Pussy comes out with Bond. They have a little brief exchange where Bond slips the note with the homing tracker into Solo's back pocket, assuming that, you know, Felix is paying attention to this. Felix will catch him and he'll get the idea of what's going on. Right. So um, they make their pleasantries. Bond over, oh, let me get the door for you. <laughs> <laughs> Have a safe trip. <laughs> Ta-ta. <laughs> Bye for now. Bon, Bye for say. now. <laughs> bon Bye-bye. <laughs> um, we just went into Blazing Saddles here. That's fantastic. <laughs> I know. Um, um, but Solo drives off in the car with a job, and uh, Bonner marks how he's enjoyed Goldfinger's presentation on Operation Grand Slap. <laughs> go figure that says so did i I'm like yeah take that james bond <laughs> yeah basically yeah just like you don't know shit because all you know is what these dead mobsters know <laughs> right exactly so we cut back to felix and his partner uh they're now thinking bond is on the move because of the homing beacon that's inside solo's pocket so they start following the cadillac odd job misses the turn for the airport which kind of signals to solo that something's going awry Um, but he pulls off to the right, turns around with his silenced gun and then shoots Mr. Solo. Sure. Why not? The silencer is funny because they're in the (laughs) middle of nowhere. Yeah. It's like, what's the point? Also, I find it really interesting that they didn't just, I don't know, knock him out or something and just let the 
the car crusher kill him. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, put a bullet in him. That's fine. From there on, he drives into an automobile scrapyard. Felix and his partner are still watching uh, on their, their little mini-map version of uh, James Bond's tracker. It's good yeah. to know that, uh, you know, the uh, the the English-speaking intelligence services are sharing their technology in yeah, such, so, a, uh, uh, such a fine way of doing so, things. Such a generous manner, too. <laughs> yeah, a- absolutely. And then, uh, you know, Lighter kind of makes a comment that Bond's probably either going to get a drink or a girl right. as they're going along. So back at the scrapyard, uh, Odd Job gets out and walks away from the car, which is then immediately picked up by a claw, thrown into a car crusher and crushed into uh, a gigantic cube of, of metal, which this may be the very first time in cinematic history that a car was crushed with a body in it. I can't think of any movie I've seen it in that would have been older than this movie. No, this is definitely the first. And again, this this movie set precedents all over the place. It came up. Right. There was so much creativity in this one movie that just sort of got dispersed to every single movie that came after it. Yeah. Now, that being said, the fact that they put a car in a car crusher with a human being in it, I still find this to be the most excessive kill it just there's so much work went into killing mr solo for no good reason and not only was it a lot of work to kill him it's even more work to get his gold back which they put in the back of the car why would you even need to put real gold mr solo didn't even see the gold that was going into his all he saw was a case that was in the back of his car so nobody was there to verify that that gold was actually gold this whole thing made zero sense, right? None. I, I, it's so I was excessive. Ready to jump on that. First of all, why didn't you take the gold out? <laughs> Second of all, if you crush the gold, that crusher would have liquefied the gold from the heat that was being generated right. from the pressure of that rod and piston. So that gold is going to be smeared all over the inside of that cube. Third, there's going to be blood and human tissue smeared in with that as well. And I think, I honestly think that cube was only slightly larger than the trunk full of gold in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And I remember what when I, when I watched the first time and even the second time, I'd forgotten that the gold was in the back. And I'm like, why didn't they take the gold out? Then he you, was already dead. <laughs> Why did they put the gold in there in the first place if they knew they were just going to kill him? Was it to make him think there was gold there? They never showed him looking at the gold. He if never, they had, they wouldn't even have needed to put all the gold in there. They could have had never gold. even bothered. He never even bothered to look at it. <laughs> so the whole scene is very confusing and disturbing. And it's, it's like uh, Mission Impossible. This will look cool. Let's build a movie around it. They're right. just like, I want this scene because it looks cool. Now, here's the thing, because nobody's ever done it before, it became an iconic thing. Right. But the whole point of crushing a body in a car is so that you never find the body. Right. But Goldfinger then clearly will stay here in a few more minutes. We have to crack this thing open to go get all the gold. So uh, I, get, I just <laughs> it, I can't it even. Makes, it, it makes no sense. Anyway, so we have a Cuba Cadillac. <laughs> It's dropped in the back of a Ford El Camino, which is my favorite car in the movie. I got to yeah. be honest with you. <laughs> I should, so it's not, I'm sorry, not a Ford El Camino. It's a Ford Ranchero. It would be a Chevy El Camino, but it's a uh, Ford okay. Ranchero. Um, it's such a man, silly uh, truck. It, oh, my it God. Is. It looked even <laughs> sillier in its 60s, guys. It really came into its own in the 70s. But So odd, it drops a cube in the back of this Ranchero, and then Oddjob just drives away. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Felix and his partner, uh, they're a bit distressed because the homing device has suddenly been deactivated. Now, come on. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that homing device should have survived that. Yeah, because it's teeny, teeny, tiny. It's and it, got, the- it got folded into a human being. <laughs> that was going to absorb the most, most of, you know, yeah. from a technical standpoint, this doesn't seem very accurate unless all the condensed metal was blocking the signal. I'll buy that. <laughs> but anyway, so the signal's gone. Felix can't follow him. And so they assume, okay, well, let's go back to the farm. James must be heading back that way. So we cut back to the farm and Goldfinger is trying to play touchy feely handsy with pussy. <laughs> who's, who's, it's she's just having not, absolutely nothing to do with it. She's yeah, she's having none of it. <laughs> she is she is sitting on that little port swingy thing, all cool, with her mint julep, and just like you know, fuck you, Ernst. Oh no, not Ernst. That's Blofeld. <laughs> fuck you, Oric. Um, but it's funny because he realizes halfway through he's not getting anywhere, so he just takes his hand away and keeps on going. I appreciate he's, that he's that he at least gives up. <laughs> he at least yeah. realizes it's it's a fruitless endeavor. Right. Well, <laughs> other and, other other worse villains would have done much worse. <laughs> well, absolutely. And I mean, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. What are you going to do with your share of the money? And I'm going to yeah. buy an island somewhere where I can be away from humanity. And, you know, especially you, Oric. <laughs> and all I'm thinking of at this time is that he's going to kill her and all the pilots. Yeah. After it's he all would done. Have. Yeah. He killed a bunch of monsters for not even a reason. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm exactly. just saying. Exactly. But yeah, so Goldfinger relents. His assistant comes up and tells him there are men with binoculars that are looking out in the car. Goldfinger initially thinks maybe it's just other breeders trying to find some sort of tips on how to breed their horses, but then yeah. connects that maybe they're there for bond, um, which I'm like, this is a CIA. <laughs> I feel like they wouldn't have been seen, but okay, whatever. Uh, that, <laughs> I'm not even going to get a whole thing about how the CIA isn't supposed to operate in the United States either, but whatever. We'll, 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 we'll go past that. Um, <laughs> he realizes that if they're there for bond, that uh, they need to kind of put on a show to show that bond's not in any danger. Mm-hmm. And uh, clearly he's done some reading on Mr. Bond and how he works. And so he <laughs> basically, he suggests to pussy, Hey, why don't you go put on something that shows your boobs and go play <laughs> nice with Mr. Bond so that yes. we can make him look like everything's all chummy. Like he's um, real comfy and cozy and yep. Yep. Exactly. So Goldfinger's uh, henchman goes out to get Bond out of his cell uh, where we uh, pretty much solidify another trope in Bond telling his entire plan. Uh, <laughs> but you know it's very important to lay out what your plan is in a bond movie regardless of which side of where you're on right that's right that's right so uh they bring bond out uh, he, he points out that delta 9 nerve gas is actually fatal and that goldfinger is going to be killing about sixty thousand people uselessly goldfinger just shrugs it off with a statistic about motorists killing uh, that many people in the u.s every two years which is hilarious. <laughs> and it also, the more times that I've watched this movie, it, it they really do solidify what is in his nature and his complete disregard for human life and how he just, right. he just clearly doesn't care how many people die in order for him to get what he wants. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting to note, uh, I saw on the IMDb trivia that uh, when they first put this on ABC, Chrysler was one of the sponsors of the show and um they made him edit that line out really yeah wow yeah so um you know bad for business right (laughs) yeah that's well there you go (laughs) 
there's more than editing for time when they say it's been edited for television. <laughs> Absolutely. So Bond uh, attacks his plan for the sheer awkwardness of it, trying to remove that much gold. And this is where I want to point out that James Bond does mathematical word problems very well here. Again, Bond knows everything. He's, he an, knows expert every on, he's an expert on everything. Algebra, calculus. Yeah, <laughs> physics. Uh, it's, it's pretty fabulous. I would have to point out that you were able to move a lot of gold out of three Mini Coopers. You could talk to Michael Caine about that if you wanted to. <laughs> um, but uh, Quite successfully. Anyway. <laughs> yes, I digress. Uh, anyway, pointing out that you're trying to move a lot of gold in a very little amount of time, Goldfinger replies, who said anything about moving it? And now we're going into the real evil plan. That's right. We get the little light bulb above Bond's head. <laughs> yep. Bond's like starts to sort the whole thing out and explaining it back to Goldfinger. And it's weird how Goldfinger is like the teacher in this moment. And Bond is a student who's just figuring out the problem on the, cho on the chalkboard. And what it really amounts to is that Goldfinger's not stealing the gold. Right. He's going to sneak in a dirty atomic bomb to irradiate the gold for 57 years, 57. 58 to be accurate. <laughs> um, and thus denying the United States the ability to actually utilize this gold in any capacity while it's still radioactive. Making um, his gold extremely. Exactly. It will rate with that much gold reserve gone. His gold becomes even more worth more money because the gold supply has been limited by a significant margin. Mm -hmm. So the red Chinese, those bad guys, they get, <laughs> they get to try and destabilize the international economy, but mm -hmm. we know the Chinese would never do that. No, never. Ever. <laughs> um, try to destabilize the international currency, and what's left makes Goldfinger even wealthier than he was before. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to point out the only flaw that Bond didn't point out in this plan was the fact that launching a nuclear device in the middle of a gold repository would likely not only melt all of that gold into whatever it was, but would probably liquefy a large portion of it at the epicenter of the explosion because <laughs> nuclear. Um, <laughs> of course, you could have a dirty bomb without it being that big of an explosion, yada, yada, yada. But yada, yada. The, the size of that device that they had maybe looked like it was going to completely eliminate Fort Knox. So that looked like somebody's ice trunk that you'd find in their basement or something. Then. Right. Like there's fish in there. There's some yeah. elk for when they went hunting two years ago, a couple of hot pockets from God knows when. Yeah. Uh, it's just ridiculous. But I mean, that's the premise. That's the evil genius or the evil real plan is not still goal, but to do that. Which kind of redeemed this movie for me a little bit because it, yeah. it was just a freaking heist movie. It's not yes. even a spy movie. Right. Until you get to the international intrigue and man of mystery bullcrap that's going to happen from what he's doing. But um, it still makes me wonder why Bond's looking into it in the first place. Never mind. <laughs> uh, anyway. So Bond tries one last attempt at threatening Goldfinger by saying it could be risky to bring a bomb into Fort Knox. You know. To which uh, Goldfinger basically threatens Bond right back, saying the Bond could be triggered anywhere should there be an attempt to locate it, which, you know, that's a pretty good that's, trump card. Yeah, that is. <laughs> we don't have to blow it up in the gold if we don't want to. <laughs> At least you'll know it's going to be blown up where the gold is if you don't interfere. <laughs> anyway, so Ajab uh, arrives with the cube that was once the Cadillac, the Catacube, as it were. <laughs> the Catacube. Uh, the Catacube. <laughs> And leaves a, a Goldfinger to separate his gold from the late Mr. Solo. 
God, that's got to have been messy. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Bond is left with uh, Pussy, who decides to... Pussy. Uh, Pusher, 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 Pusher. Uh, who is putting on the more friendly act, uh, walking off with Bond and saying she's off duty and she's unarmed. And maybe, you know, things could be a little more cash uh, while they're at this point before she died, before he dies needlessly in an explosion. Um, as they're walking across the yard, this is, of course, when Felix and his partner see them and say, oh, yeah, Bond's got a chick. He's fine. And so they drive off. Let's go yeah. get something to eat. Maybe <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken again. I didn't get the finish before. <laughs> yeah, you caught that, huh? <laughs> well, they were in Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, do you want to show you're in Kentucky without actually being in Kentucky? Shoot it at a Kentucky Fried Chicken. There you go. Why not? <laughs> All right. So Pussy and Bond walk into... This actually sounds really... Pussy and Bond walk into a barn. <laughs> Just a joke. Um Oh boy. Which is yeah. quite charming for a brief second or two and then turns into a uh, super date rapey almost instantaneously yeah. after a lot of karate moves and judo yeah. chops. Yeah, um, it feels very playful at first and then uh yeah. Just, you feel like if they if they just continued with the playful nature of it. Well, that's the thing I don't get is that why did they why did they insert Bond's aggressiveness in that mm-hmm. manner there? When if if they would have portrayed it as her being up for it the whole time, then it wouldn't be creepy and rapey. Yeah. And and it would make all the more reason why she would sort of start seeing things Bond's way. Well, see, and that's the thing. You could have actually had her initiate the kiss so that she's the, the strong woman that's doing what she wants to do. And it's right. mutual. And after it's done, Bond can be like, look, I think you I, I don't think you have all the skinny on what's going on here. You know, right. Exactly. That nerve gas is going to kill people. And she could have been like, no, it's only going to knock them out. No, it's going to straight out kill fuckers. Right. And, you know, it is unfortunate that that there was a fix so nearby. Yes. To, yes. to what, you know, instead of what actually happens, which is the whole. I'm going to force you into seeing my way of how handsome I am. and Right. You know. And it, it basically implies that because John, James Bond put it to her, yeah. that she was just going to do whatever he wanted. There's no rational reason for her to stop. And you spent all this time establishing that she's a very calculating and, and knowledgeable woman who's doing what she wants to do for her. And then all of a sudden she gets a little bit of the James Bond action and she just turns into a puddle. I hate that. Yeah. I hate that because of all the reasons you have to hate it. But yeah. I hate it because it's the weakest part of a pretty damn good script for a spy well, movie. Yeah, exactly. Not only is it cringy for the very nature of what it is, it makes no sense to the plot and to what her character is. Right. So it, it almost feels like sort of a de rigueur thing. They had to do it. That's how yeah. you make movies. Bond has to exert, exert himself upon whatever females in the vicinity to get what he wants. Right. Nobody was writing that way. I don't know. There's a billion things about it, but it is the singularly the worst part of this movie. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I don't like watching it ever. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, even the, even the, the karate, the trading, the judo stuff gets a little creepy on it, but um, it is what it is. And, you know, Bond eventually presses himself on her. We get the no, no, no moment. Then the ooh la la moment. And yeah, we are, it's you the know, whole, we're, we're, it's, it's the whole mentality of it's only no until she says yes. Right. It is what it is. It's on film folks. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't. I don't think it tarnishes the movie as a whole, but it, it definitely tarnishes the script as a whole. Yeah, and 
you know, if they ever remake this thing, I hope they decide to do it a lot better in that particular incarnation. So indeed, um, indeed. That, that pretty much wraps up uh, act two. Whew, uh, we've learned, was... we learned everything we needed to do. And I think I need a nap. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully we're headed into uh, act three and uh, you know, I'll grab the steering wheel and we'll drive this thing home. All right. I'll try and keep commenting. <laughs> <sighs> So then we're, uh, we're seeing the airplanes getting ready the next day and Pussy taking off with her fleet and they get over Fort Knox and okay, hold up. I know this is the sixties, but didn't they have like protective airspace back then? Yes. Uh, particularly over the gold depository of the United States of America. Yeah. Wouldn't you think that, you know, some, some flags would be raised if, you know, just casually a fleet of planes flying over Fort friggin' Knox. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) So they get over Fort Knox and they start expelling the gas. And then we get this montage of people in the barracks and at a hangar and by some tanks. And we see all these people collapsing. (laughs) I just kept thinking of stripes the whole time. (laughs) I just, God, I would have loved to have been on set. When, when they were directing all these people to fall over and they all fall over so gently so that no one is getting hurt as they're right. falling to the ground. <laughs> there's there's one particular guy that um, <laughs> when he falls down, he like basically lands on his arm so he's not going to hurt himself. And then he moves his <laughs> rifle out of the way so that he doesn't hurt himself on the rifle. So he can lay comfortably for a little while. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so then, um, so then we see all these different groups of soldiers collapsed all over the place, and we hear Denise say the baby is asleep. And so there, from there, we see uh, Odd Job throw Bond a mask. So, uh, so caring, <laughs> so conscientious to give Bond a mask during all this. <laughs> um, but anyway, and Goldfinger's caravan makes its way to Fort Knox. Everybody's wearing gas masks. And they pass by all these people in town and they're all knocked out. And there's like a car crash in the middle of this little town. And then there's soldiers, including Felix. Everybody's knocked out cold. And uh, they get to the gate and they bring out this big, clumsy, cumbersome looking box and check the air toxicity. And they realize that they can take off the masks. And that's did when you, they... Uh, did you notice that it says right on it, Auric? spectrometer yes i did the, the, was... the goldfinger's company made the spectrometer yeah nice touch <laughs> <laughs> so they blow the gate and they enter the grounds of fort knox and from there um out of the ambulance that they're driving they break out the big laser and they uh they cut a hole in the cargo door on the side of fort knox and then yank it down with some chains and then from here goldfinger's men pour into fort knox and then we cut to a helicopter piloted by Pussy bringing down Goldfinger along with the bomb. Um, and from there, then we see the bomb being rolled in on a trolley. And then we see this the uh, Korean scientist comes up and he arms it. In the meantime, they open the vault door somehow. I don't know how they just magically knew well, all the right... Uh, co- I saw yeah, some sort henchman, of code breaker thing, but... Well, I his henchman was up there hitting switches and whatnot, so maybe yeah. he knew which ones needed to open it. Yeah, well, that was the thing. I was, I saw like an, uh, a moment, there's a, there's a cutaway during that part where you see some numbers like flip around, and I don't know if they had some sort yeah. of de- decoder or whatever, but so it, it was... probably it was, a combination. 
Yeah. It was so fast that I was like, how did they get that open so quickly? But whatever. Well, and can I say <laughs> that the, the, I was actually very impressed by how the laser worked. Yeah. When they cut the door down because they did it slowly enough that it seemed viable. Like it actually was, but yes. I like how the door was still there and they had to put the chains over to get the truck to pull the door off of the rest of the way. Right. At least they did it in a way that felt real. You know, it wasn't like we're going to blast the laser and melt it Star Trek style. And the door just disappeared. Exactly. Well, it's funny too. You know, some of this uh, care that went into making things realistic really could have been uh, used in um, Moonraker. But anyway, I digress. Um, yes. So in the meantime, Felix and the soldiers start waking up. Okay. So were they pretending to fall down the whole time? Well, see, that's the thing that's like, were all the soldiers, because they were soldiers shooting at the, the blue suit guys right. when they went in there. So could you imagine the, the Brigadier General who's in the car with Felix is like, we're going to need you to order all your men to pretend that they're passed out for gas. I, and the general going, are you fucking insane? Well, they must have. <laughs> well, thankfully, they did switch the tanks. They weren't acting. Right. Because, because otherwise, you know, you wouldn't have seen that that little car crash in the, in the center of that little town. And right. And, and they sort of explain it away at the very end of the movie or whatever, but <laughs> I just, I just, just the thought of having to organize every soldier on your, your army base saying, all right, at this exact moment, man, you're all going to fall over and pretend you're asleep. Yeah. At old at Oh, 700. I want you to, <laughs> when you see those planes, it should be clearly shouldn't be flying in our airspace and they fly <laughs> over you count to three and then fall down. Like you passed out. <laughs> this is the briefing. I want to see that got cut out of the movie, right? <laughs> you get George C. Scott in there dressed up like Patton with his little arm thing in there. Oh, geez. No poor dumb bastard ever saved the gold by staying awake for his country. He <laughs> saved the gold by pretending to pass out when the airplane fly out flew over him. That, I need that. I need that in my Goldfinger movie. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I was saying, <laughs> Felix and the soldiers, they start waking up. They get on the horn and they start getting the cavalry going. Uh, then we cut back to the bomb being loaded into the vault and they handcuff Bond to it and then send it down the elevator to the bottom of the vault. So Goldfinger heads back out, and that's when the military comes in and attacks Goldfinger's troops. Goldfinger runs back inside, closes up the vault, does a quick costume change to make it look like he's an American general or something, then grabs his gun and starts shooting his own men. <laughs> so, <laughs> What a nice fella. Yeah, he's a real stand-up guy. So anyway, uh, then he tries, <laughs> on top of everything else, he tries to instruct the army guys uh, that, are, that are making their way in. And as soon as they've passed, he turns right back around and shoots them in the back. <laughs> so, so then we cut back to what's going on in the vault. So Bond's still trying to break free from the bomb while Kish wants to disarm the bomb since he's now trapped inside the vault. An odd job in a strange... A uh, display of faithfulness to Goldfinger to the very end stops Kish from disarming this bomb, even though he's locked in with him and throws him over the guardrail and kills him as he falls to his death. Anyway, Bond sees this and realizes Kish has the handcuff keys. 
So then we get this moment where Bond is dragging <laughs> this heavy ass bomb with him as he tries to get the keys out of Kish's uh, <laughs> breast pocket. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so in the meantime, Oddjob sees this and is trying to catch up to him. Uh, but Bond gets free of the cuffs. And then we get this final fight between Bond and Oddjob, which is a great final little fight. I do appreciate this. I still just sort of scratch my head at the fact that Oddjob is still so loyal, knowing that he's going to die inside this vault if they don't disarm the bomb. But at least he's got more loyalty than than Goldfinger does. So there's that. Oh, shit. Um, so anyway, you know, we see odd job and he throws his hat and he cuts the power cables and they're sparking all over the place. So obviously they're still live or whatever. And then Bond grabs this big, I think it's wood stick thing and starts swinging <laughs> it and it just, and odd job just keeps breaking it. And it's so obviously like balsa wood or foam or something because it just, it's the most unconvincing quote unquote mm-hmm. piece of wood that I've ever seen. <laughs> it's obviously not wood. It's like, it just breaks it at like piece after piece is breaking off this thing, you know, trying to make odd job look so indestructible or whatever. But anyway, whatever, you know, I'll bite. Sure. <laughs> Movies. Um, so then we get a quick cut back to the firefight outside. And it appears obvious that the last of Goldfinger's men are sort of being cornered in that cargo bay. Um, but then we cut back inside again, and we see Bond sliding across the floor, obviously having just been hit or thrown or something by Odd Job. And Bond grabs some kind of metal lever off of something nearby, and he starts swinging. But then Odd Job disarms him. And then at this point, we see Odd Job kind of go to work on him, um, just sort of flaunting yeah. his pure strength advantage, just kind of th- just really going to work with his fists on him. And um, he throws him across the floor. And that's when Bond picks up Odd Job's hat. And then we get this like slow, they're sort of slowly circling because Odd Job's like, oh boy, okay. So they circle until now Odd Job's back is is to these metal bars or whatever. And then Bond throws the hat, which winds up in the steel bars. And then just as Odd Job, of course, goes to retrieve it, Bond slides across the floor, grabs the electrical wires, and touches them to the steel bars, which shock and kill Odd Job. Right. So we started with a shocking at the very beginning of this movie mm-hmm. and we're ending with a shocking. Yes. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't throw out the shocking. I mean, he did it. What was it? A, uh, he blew a fuse. <laughs> yeah. That's what he says. <laughs> right. And you know, it's funny to me, uh, that whole scene, odd job can hit everything with deadly accuracy, but can't hit James Bond 15 feet in front of him. Right. <laughs> and then it's you like- see Bond throw it. And you're like, well, shit. Bond's not any better at it. But then you realize Bond meant to throw it into the bars the whole time. Right. So from here, Bond obviously races to try and disarm the bomb. Meanwhile, the final battle between the American forces and the last of Goldfinger's men ensues. And Bond finally breaks open the lock on the bomb door with gold. Uh, I'm just, gold. it was just, it was kind of silly. It was kind of a silly thing where he uses like one piece of gold as a hammer to hammer another piece of gold to break open a latch <laughs> that's probably made of metal that's harder because gold, as we all know, is pretty malleable. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, okay, whatever. Anyway. You got you um, got to work with the tools that are on hand. Then. That's right. 
So anyway, he opens it up and it looks exactly like you would expect for a, a bomb from 1960s. It is the silliest lots thing. Lots of spinnies. <laughs> lots of spinnies. It's so silly. There's just like whirly painted thing, like little red swirls <laughs> painted and, and rubber bands and all. <laughs> I mean, just lots of little tick, tick, tick noises. And <laughs> anyway, uh, just as Bond is about to pull the wrong cables apart, this specialist from the military comes in and just sort of casually switches it off in the correct manner that it should have been. Right. And you know he's a specialist because he's wearing glasses. <laughs> yes. That's what makes him a specialist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, this being a Bond movie, the countdown stops at 007. Natch. <laughs> yeah. So, Felix arrives and asks what made pussy switch the gas canisters and call Washington. And then we get the silly, I must have appealed to her maternal instincts. <laughs> Fade to. <laughs> Fade to uh, <laughs> an airstrip where uh, Bond is supposed to be going to Washington to be thanked by the president. And yet, of course, Goldfinger has hijacked the plane because apparently American Secret Service is, you know, our army is completely hapless. And well, He had a uniform on. It was an Air Force uniform, too, I might add. Um, <laughs> so you, you, yeah. you did com- you completely missed the, the, the drink reference, so that made me laugh out loud when I heard it. Felix, as I said, I told the stewardess to uh, have enough drinks ready for three. Oh, who else is coming along? No one, James. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, of course, Goldfinger has hijacked the plane. And, yeah, Goldfinger emerges and Bond, of course, is surprised. And we get this final fight between Goldfinger and Bond on the plane. Eventually, the uh, the window gets broken and Goldfinger gets sucked out the broken window. And Bond and Pussy are trying to bring the nose up of the plane. And, of course, there's that's no good. And you see a quick cut to like the guys in the military, like watching like, oh, no, they're they're going to die or whatever. And then you see this is the part that's funny to me is that you see a dot on the airplane, come off of the airplane on their scanner as if their scanners are that good in 1960s. But anyway, (laughs) obviously they parachute down And uh, right before the plane crashes into a lake, the ocean, I'm not sure. The ocean, anyway, I'm guessing. The ocean. So <laughs> military guys quickly realize uh, that they need to go send out a search party. And that's, of course, when uh, there's a helicopter flying overhead and you see Pussy standing up and Bond trips her again. And that's now's not the time to be rescued. I'm going to be date rapey with you again. <laughs> Under the parachute. Under the parachute where no one can see me. <laughs> Creepy. <laughs> oh my God. I, so I just have to point out, cause I did call this out earlier. The, the whole thing with Goldfinger getting sucked out of the airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, that just doesn't happen. Right. I don't know why that right. was such a, uh, maybe it did happen at some point in time in aviation history, but, you I'm, know, sure they were, I'm sure they were just playing on people's fears back then. They had of, to have been because cabins can depressurize like that. And yeah, it will generate suction. But if you plug up that hole, it stops making suction. <laughs> because a cabin, once it's depressurized, it starts losing pressure. That's what depressurized means. Right. And it's going to reach a state of equilibrium pretty quick. And even before then, 
the amount of force that's going out of that window is going to be significantly less as the cabin starts to pressurize with the outside. Right. So the fact that Goldfinger was such a large individual. He would have served as a plug. Exactly. <laughs> Not gotten sucked all the way through. Because, I don't know, I've watched a good few space movies in my time. And I've seen, like, <laughs> I, I, I just, I think of the movie Alien Resurrection, where the big alien hybrid thing gets sucked through that little pinhole in space. And it basically gets sucked through inside out because of the pressure. Right. So that it has to force itself into that little hole. Also, that is not accurate. But it looks way cooler than a fat Swiss man stuck inside a porthole in an airplane somehow managed to get his entire mass through that hole without a drop of blood being shed out there. Uh, well, you know. I, I had to say it for completion's it's, it's sake. The, it's the same reason why Tilly didn't have a drop of blood on the back of her head. Right. It's also the same reason that explosive decompression caused that airplane to crash. If airplanes <laughs> couldn't fly pressurized, none of them would be able to fly. <laughs> also, why is Pussy Galore flying a military airplane? Also, 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 also. The also. movie ends with a lot of bad questions. I'm just saying. <laughs> I will say this for those that may be a little irritated by how often we pointed out the slight uh, rapiness of Bond in this movie is... A, sorry, too bad, because it happened. <laughs> and but, it's our podcast. So. And it's our podcast. Uh, but maybe at the end, there was a bit more consent as to what happened as they were waiting to be rescued. But I'll leave that up to the listeners to make their own determinations about that. Absolutely. Because <laughs> we have clearly established we have no way of adding any scholarly dissertation on this movie so nope <laughs> smarter people than us should uh, determine what all of that actually is yes exactly <laughs> so hey ben are we done we are pretty much done i do want to give some just final final thoughts just real Absolutely. quick um upon watching this movie again which i hadn't admittedly i hadn't watched goldfinger in quite a while and upon watching it with a much closer critical eye i understand the appeal of this movie. It is the most Bondian James Bond movie of the bunch. It's it's what set the precedent for everything else. The Ken Adams sets, the photography, prime Connery, an iconic henchman. Every scene feels iconic. You've got a great capable Bond girl and pussy galore. Granted, it's it's got some it's got some moments, <laughs> but in the bigger picture, this movie did an awful lot right. Um, it's got great quotable lines all over the place. You know, anybody you run into on the street is going to be able to reel off at least one quote from Goldfinger, whether they're a Bond fan or not. Absolutely. Is it my favorite James Bond movie? No. And the reason it's not my favorite James Bond movie is because of the way I was conditioned to watch James Bond movies. Because I grew up in the era of Roger Moore. And by the time that Roger Moore had thrown his hat into the ring being Bond, the stunts and the explosions and the action was so big that I'm so used to big explosion-y, mind-blowing stunts. I'm, one of the first movies I ever saw was The Spy Who Loved Me. And that pre-title sequence to this day is probably my favorite. And this movie doesn't have one of those moments. And I think that's why just on a personal favorites, you know, while I have great, great respect for this movie, and I think it's, 
probably, like I said earlier, I think it's the most important movie of the Bond franchise because of what it established, the size of it. It's just not my favorite because it doesn't have the big explosion-y things. Well, see, and, you know, from my standpoint, I, I like it because of the opposite. Um, I also grew up in the Roger Moore era. And, you know, I, th- I think it's pretty clear from these podcasts that while I, I like the Roger Moore ones, I feel like they very rapidly became a parody of themselves mm-hmm. pretty early on. I think after the the Spy Who Loved Me, things just started getting a little too campy for my tastes. Mm-hmm. And um, I much like camp in my superheroes, I don't really like camp in my Bonds and my spy movies mm-hmm. as much. And so my most of my exposure to James Bond was watching Goldfinger on ABC every year. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one was kind of the one that was in my lexicon until I started watching the movies in theaters voluntarily because mm-hmm. my grandmother used to like watching these movies. And so when I was with her, we would watch this whenever it came out. But I like that this movie is much more subtle. Yes. Um, I like that it's more sneaky, sneaky Bond. I agree with that. And that the gadgets aren't crammed in your face. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I I don't like the big explodey set pieces necessarily that you get from the Roger Moore films, because I always felt like they were, there were some that are very good, don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, but it always felt like one up and ship. Like, we're going to jump a boat over all this stuff now. What do you think of that Guinness Book of World Records? Right. It's like, we always have to do a bigger, better, brighter, wider. And I think he stopped being sneaky Bond and started being Look at the cool things I can do, Bond. It's 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 almost like somebody said, "Hey, we're going to jump a motorcycle over a Range Rover, but under a helicopter." Yeah, <laughs> except that in that particular case, it's still a sneaky, sneaky Bond movie with good stuff. That's what the Daniel Craig ones are. They took everything and mixed them together and made true significantly true. superior films. I hope that this final one is a truly superior film. <laughs> I, I already told you there. He just made his Roger Moore movie with Spectre, so. If he makes a Timothy Dalton movie in this one, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> but but anyway, I mean, Goldfinger remains, it's not my favorite Bond movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'd have to say that the, all of the Daniel Craig ones would have a much better place in my heart than this one. Mm-hmm. But as far as anything post or pre-Craig, this one's definitely my favorite. It's definitely my favorite of the Sean Connery films. And like you said, it, it it's the blueprint that made every James Bond movie from there. It, it took the first two elements, crammed it into one that was one whole cohesive layer with a good story, relatively good character development, and then immediately shut it all off when they started doing other movies. So, um, <laughs> you know, it was a good place for everybody to look at too. I just think that the writers that came forward to that had other directives on what they needed to punch up for whatever era the movies were made into. Mm-hmm. Cause every Bond movie is basically this movie, right? It's just, there's different, We're either thinky bond or breaky bond. And, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to decide which one you want to commit that movie to being because nobody was able to find that mix until after this movie, I think, until we got to Daniel Craig. I definitely think there's a lot of truth in that statement. I think that with Roger Moore, you got a lot more camp and explosion and less thinky. And I think they tried to go back to thinky with Dalton. Agree. Briefly, but with a dark tone to it and people weren't, they didn't, Yeah, they weren't in for it. And so they were like, all right, well, let's, let's go back to more Roger Mori type stuff and, but newer right. and, and, you with know, Pierce let's make Brosnan, it, yeah. you got more thinky bad guys. Yeah. The bad guys became the, the serious part. Bond just kept being Roger Moore with things blowing up left and right. Right. And then we finally got back to a slightly more thinky Bond with 
Daniel Craig. Right. And we got back to a bond with feelings and humanity. Yes, exactly. He wasn't a caricature anymore. He was actually a full-fledged character like Connery's bond was. Exactly. And even maybe the early Roger Moore ones were yeah, to that absolute, extent. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't know. I'm not a Bond scholar. I just I'm, I'm thinking he's right off the cuff. I got, <laughs> oh boy, we're people get... can people can argue with me. Please, you know, send us an email. Tell me we're totally full of shit. And we know nothing about our Bond stuff. We just want to hear from you. And yes. hey Ben, where can they hear from from? Where can hey. we hear from them from? I can't speak English anymore. <laughs> not even American English. Hey Jason, I'll tell you where our listeners can talk to us and tell us what they think. Because That's we, what I was trying to say. So if you go to cicdeaddrop at gmail.com, that's cicdeaddrop, all one word, at gmail.com, you can email us there. Or you can talk to me on Instagram. You can reply to any of our posts. And really, our DMs are open. <laughs> that sounds weird. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, at Central Intelligence Cinema, spaced by uh, underscores. Or on Twitter, you can contact us at CIC Spy Pod. That's it. All one word. CIC Spy Pod. So uh, talk to us on any of those places. and yep. Tell us what you think. And we will, we will certainly uh, bring it up in a future episode. I want to thank people who... Recently, we got a couple new uh, reviews actually on iTunes from nice. from a couple people. So um, I don't have those uh, those Apple handles in front of me, but I, I would like to thank them. They all gave us five star reviews. Thank you. And if you listener out there who haven't given us a five star review, uh, think our podcast is worth some of the salt that <laughs> we've got. <laughs> worth something, um, <laughs> please give us a glowing five-star review on iTunes because that helps our podcast show up quicker when people search for podcasts of this nature. So uh, yeah, we hope to hear from you. Yes, indeedy. But uh, man, I think that is well and done it, man. You and me both. I think we can call Goldfinger covered and in the books yes. and we can move on to whatever our next adventure is, which Indeed. if I'm not mistaken, might be Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It could very well be. Yes, we'll have to see. N until we give you a little bit more intel. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, I'm Ben. I'm Jason. And the CIC will return with more missions more martinis and more mayhem. <laughs>